Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Don't remember me, why should ya? Oh, you was just a down-and-out Irish lad you hired for a couple of weeks, sweeping up hair and such like, haha. <laughs> but I remember these. And you, Benjamin Barker, haha. <laughs> Later transported to Botany Bay, for life! Hello, all theater lovers, both out in Proud and on the DL, and welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape Broadway as we know it today, both for better and for worse. It is called A Little Sondheim Music, and it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today, one might call him a music man, one might call him um, just a good person and a fun little ditty but i call him justin mendoza uh he's the music director of book of mormon or at least he was in the before time he will be again in the after time has also worked on uh wicked and in the heights and he's here today to discuss a specific sondheim show hello justin hello matt <laughs> welcome welcome thank you um first of all gotta get the big question out of the way how does it feel to be vaxxed it feels great yeah i'm grateful yes do you walk around like you have a superpower no, we forget sometimes. Like we still wear our masks, of course. And that's right. Justin, that's not a royal we. Justin has a husband named Eric, yes. and he is also vaccinated. Uh, who's and he's the music director for Come From Away. One of the conductors, yes. One of the conductors. Yes. Sorry, I didn't mean to erase the other people. I'm, <laughs> but he's the one I know. Yes. Uh, Justin, what show are we discussing today? Uh, Naughty Marietta. Fuck you. <laughs> Naughty of all the shows to say. That's the random one I pull out when people ask me about a show. I say, Naughty Marietta. Best Picture nominee, Naughty Marietta. Is that correct? That's 100% correct. I don't even know that show. Actually, I, no, I know Sweet Mystery of Life. That's what it's from? Yes. Oh, okay. I think. Oh, Sweet Mystery of Life. Yeah. Last, yeah, the one that's in Millie that they stole. Yes. That's and Young Frankenstein as well. Uh, oh, right, right. The movie, the movie. Yes, because when Madeline Kahn uh, gets the big one. That's what she starts to sing. That's the joke. She uh, she likes herself a well-endowed man, which, you know, 
Oh, honey. So what are we really talking about, you troll of a person? <laughs> We're talking about the masterpiece, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, a musical thriller. I, are we going to throw around such words like masterpiece with this show? Oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> I do not throw that around lightly, I will say. No. Well, look at your arms. You can't throw anything lightly. Okay. <laughs> um, so what is your history with this show? How did it come into your life? Well, um, I think Sondheim in general, I learned from – my parents were big Barbra Streisand fans. They are. Um, they had all the albums. There was really no hope for you, was there? <laughs> Correct. But my dad loved it, too. I mean, we had every album growing oh, yeah. up. My dad loves Streisand. My dad is the, is the gayest straight man alive. <laughs> um, the Barbra Streisand uh, Broadway album, I think it's called, right? Yes, that's where uh, – that's the first one where she does putting it together into Everybody Says Don't. Yes. yes. yes, yes that yes. was the first time I heard any of those songs. Like, If I Loved You, I'd never heard Something's Coming. I didn't know West Side mm-hmm. Story. Um, putting she's it on, together. She's on the bare stage on the chair, right? With the sheet music yep. below her. And the hat on. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, um, Barb. Somewhere. I fell in love with it there. Right, right, right. Um, but Sweeney Todd, she does um, Not Long Around. She does Pretty Women as well, doesn't she? Yeah, matched up with Ladies Who Lunch. What a goddamn whore she is. <laughs> There's also a making of video. It's on YouTube, I think. Yes. Where she talks about, I asked Sondheim to write new lyrics for me for... For uh, I'm Still Here, I believe. she, Or is that... Or... Her... She does. She has new lyrics for I'm Still Here. I don't know if it's on that album or it's just something she does live. She's um, asked him for a lot. She has. <laughs> she has. And he's like, yeah, fine, whatever. You're Barbara. <laughs> he wrote a new new bridge for um, Sending the Clowns. Yes, that's exactly correct. Because she said she wanted to return to it or something. And yeah, well, because normally the song is written to have that little speech by Frederick towards the end where he says um, uh, to flirt with uh, rescue, uh, flirt with being rescued when I have no intention of being saved. And bec- when it's taken out, the song doesn't really um, fit like as a solo, or at least that's what Sondheim says. So when Barbara was like, um, Steve, can we add a bridge here? Because it feels like something's missing. And he's like, you know, Barbara, something is missing. And you're correct to ask for a bridge. So I'll write you a bridge. God bless. So you listened to that album. You heard Not While I'm Around and Pretty Women. Yes. And then um, it was a time when I was going to the library in San Francisco to check out musicals on mm-hmm. CD and records. And um, I saw Sweeney Todd. Mm-hmm. And I recognized the title. But when I pulled out the album, I saw that artwork. And it scared the living daylights out of me. I was like, what is this? these mm-hmm. demonic characters yeah and i put it back because i was like that looks weird i didn't know what's called the demon barber of fleet street so that's a no <laughs> so then years later um i saw the video at blockbuster mm-hmm. the um the angela and george video and again that picture kind of scared me and i was like but i want to know what this is and then shortly after that i did a sondheim review with my kids theater company mm. not mine but the one that you were working yes at, yeah so I learned about Sweeney Todd there. All I really knew about it was what my grandmother had talked about because I, 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 I was a scared kid. I got scared a lot. I was, I was not like a thriller fan until I was a teenager, and that's when I fell in love with Scream and Nightmare on Elm Street and all that good stuff. But the story goes. So I've already talked about with night music how my um, mother's parents walked out of a little night music on opening night, like. A weekend in the country happens, it ends, and they go, we're out of here. Or at least my grandfather told my grandmother, we're out of here. Um, and, if, and I'll discuss one of my grandparents in passion in the passion episode, but there's toxicity there. 
my father's grandparents, it wasn't opening night, but it was pretty soon after the show opened, saw the show, and my grandmother was horrified from the moment they walked in the theater because the on the stage are two people digging a grave. And she was like, they're digging graves. And then they get to the act one finale, and she goes, they're going to make people eat those bodies. And a little priest happens, and they walked out. And, no way. Yeah, so I just hear from my grandmother, wonderful Sally, about how horrified she was by this show. So in my mind, I was like, oh, this disgusting show. And then I saw it at Stage Door. And, you know, it's Stage Door Matter. It's teenagers with a single piano and, like, a unit set made of wood. So it's not, like, Broadway. But in my 14-year-old brain, it was, like, as good as anything I'd ever seen on Broadway. Totally. And the most talented teenagers ever. Like, that cast was... Itai Benson of oh, yeah. Bands Visit and Company fame. He was Tobias in that production. So that should tell you guys the kind of talent that Stage Door Manor produces. And uh, I was doing West Side Story at the time with Shayna Taub as our Anita. So again, just like breeding ground of uh, who's who. The stars. Yes. But so I we saw their dress rehearsal and I was gobsmacked. I was like, this is the show. No one told me that this was the show. And then I bought the uh, DVD with Angela Lansbury and George Herman, mm-hmm. and it was just like all downhill from there. And I've just been obsessed ever since. Obsessed. Obsessed. I have uh, that DVD still. I have every recording of it. Well, I had to actually write reviews for all the recordings of Sweeney Todd a few, about a year or two ago. Did I ever tell you this? No. So I, for a while, was commissioned to write reviews of cast albums for um, a man who once was the editor-in-chief of Theater Mania. He had, you did tell me this, yes. yes. He, had, he had published a book 17 years ago that was uh, a collection of reviews from like everybody he knew. Peter Felicia, um, Gerard Alessandri, who did Forbidden Broadway. Mm-hmm. And it's re- there are reviews of like every recording of every theatrical score ever. So, you know, like... Broadway, revival, film soundtrack, any like any major recording that there is on a zero to five star rating system. And he wanted to update it, but you know, doing another book's expensive and plus like at the rate at which cast recordings come out now, like you can never keep up with it all. So he transferred it all to a website. He asked me to help contribute. And mostly I was just doing new stuff. Um, I did like Dear Evan Hansen, I did Fun Home, I did Heathers, and he was like, Hey, the guy who used to who did all the Sweeney Todd recordings isn't writing anymore. And I need someone to write reviews for the film soundtrack and for the Imelda Staunton revival as and oh and the and the Patty revival with the you know John Doyle stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like to make it you know all uniform. Why don't you just rewrite all the old reviews as well? So I was like, don't have to tell me twice. How fun! That's awesome. Oh yeah. So I I I you can look it up. Uh, it's castalbumreviews.com. Uh, I review everything: the original, the Patty George Hearn concert the revival the movie soundtrack and then the Imelda Staunton revival with Michael Ball and I have some opinions on each one but I have all those recordings uh plus I have the movie on DVD and yeah it's I just very much enjoy this show it's a good show I've never seen Sweeney Todd on stage I've always wanted to see it yes you didn't see it when it was in the pie shop no oh wait just kidding fucking liar you're a liar lied you're a fucking liar I guess I a, my friend Billy was in that, and, like, I was going to see my friend Billy's show. Mm-hmm. I loved it, by the way, but also I never saw the show as its original incarnation was supposed to be. Right. Least. You've never seen it on the scale of which it was originally produced. Correct. Got it, got it, Although got it. I did love the pie shop. Yes. Well, we'll get into that because, I mean, I've talked about it on this podcast once before. I fucking loved that production. 
saw it twice. Uh, God damn it, was that production good? Anyway, so yes, those we've talked about our own histories with the show, and uh, I interrupted you about something. You said we were talking about X, Y, and Z the other day. Oh, I don't know. Oh, that, um, that's however such as life. <laughs> you know, I was a film major in college, right? You were? Yes. Um, I love movies, and I love movie scores. That's like my second. You you hobby. and Sondheim, baby, right? Um, so I was watching Vertigo and Psycho, uh-huh. probably too young to be watching those, but um, I For loved sure. right. I loved Bernard Herrmann, mm. like already from the get go, right? Mm-hmm. So little did I know in my research that that was a huge influence for for Sondheim. Yeah, writing the score. Particularly the movie Hangover Square. Yeah, which I just heard. Uh, I've still yet to hear the music in that, but I now know of it. And I've, I've known of it for a long time now. I just actually haven't watched it or listened to it. I believe the first chord of Hangover Square is a tritone, which is um, do you wanna the pl- devil's tone. Apparently. Do you want to play it? We're right by your piano. A tritone is this. Fun. Okay. And they call Hi- that the... Uh, the devil's the chord? devil's tone because it's not um why do they call it that I mean it's, it's not pleasant I don't you know, know. It's, it's uh the the interval is just not doesn't evoke a beautiful melody but that's um there are plenty of tritones throughout the score Sweeney Todd there are plenty of amazing motif musical motifs and otherwise mm-hmm. throughout the score Sweeney Todd that gives you hints to the story I can't say enough about this this freaking show well so full disclosure guys. You're listening to this, and you know what this is going to be because you see what the length is. Uh, Justin and I still don't know. We're recording this like in the moment right here, right now. This could very well be five hours long. <laughs> five hours long. It could be a two-parter, or it could be a very long one episode. I don't know. My husband, Eric, was like, make sure it's just not a constant love letter. He's like, I might give you any advice. He's like, if you guys just go on about, oh, I love that, I love that, I love that, I love that, which it mm-hmm. might very well be, though, you know? Well, I mean, to be <laughs> fair, if you guys, uh, you know— don't like love letter episodes skip the a little night music episode because i just i don't have enough amazing things to say about night music it's incredible um yeah charlotte uh charlotte Malpe, who was my guest for that she love charlotte she's amazing but she she also really loves the show but she was like she said something along the lines of it was like her only dissenting thing about it was like it's it doesn't necessarily like hit her emotionally but it is like a wonderful show uh which is fair. I don't think Night Music is a show that, like, moves a lot of people. But it is what I think, like, sometimes most indestructible musical. Uh, the way that I described it was, like, it is really hard but not impossible to fuck up fo- – uh, to do Follies well. <laughs> it's really hard but not impossible to fuck up Night Music. Night music. Like, you have to work hard to fuck up that show. Uh, I, whereas I think Sweeney, while Sweeney can really be this really amazing piece of theater, it also, like, it is an easy show to fuck up. It's mm-hmm. also kind of an easy show to do well. It's so crazy how, like, the material is so good that, like, you just kind of have to trust it to let it be good. But also, like, if you are just so insistent on doing your own thing with it, the show will die. Mm-hmm. Totally. <laughs> it's it's quite interesting. There's some shows that are so good on paper that no matter what you do, it'll be good. Mm-hmm. Sweeney, of course, is so good on paper, but you can fuck it up. Yeah. Because of the complexity and because of – you need to angle it a certain way, I think. You, there's no way around it. You can't make it about Moses and Sunshine, you know? Well, also <sighs> – I mean, we're getting into all the nitty-gritty before we even get into the history of this know, damn right? thing. But I find that too many people, because they hold Sondheim into such a high regard, 
they kind of treat his stuff with kid gloves and like a magnifying glass of trying to like bring out the subtext and put uh, an attitude on something so that way they can bring something new to it and and it's all about the uh, reverence everybody has for the material and like just fucking do it especially sweeney because while sweeney has all these complexities and is brilliant in so many ways it's also just a really fun thriller uh like if you just sort of play up the suspense of it all that's enough like let the actors do what they do Mm -hmm. and just keep the show going keep that motor going because there are so many scares in this show and jump moments and and sometimes that he wrote it to be scary to scare the hell out of people yeah yeah um and we'll get into a lot of that later but yeah i mean it's part of the reason why i loved the pie shop production so much was like i thought that they did such a good job of just letting the show be fun again because I think I find too many people just take the show so seriously that mm-hmm. like all the humor is gone. I'm guilty of that. Of course you are. So let's get into this because we've been talking about our own damn selves for a little bit too for long. For half an hour. <laughs> for half an hour. So <clears throat> at this point in time, Sondheim now has a Tony Award for co- two Tony Awards for company, uh, one for Follies and one for Little Night Music. Pacific Overtures makes absolutely zero dollars, uh, but it is critically admired and he does get a tony nomination again for it but he's in a place where he is very in very uh he's very well regarded but uh he's gonna need to raise money for this passion project of his that he's had since 1973 Mm -hmm. he goes out to london yeah so i'm also jumping all over in terms of timelines but 1973 uh night music i think has opened and uh, Angela Lansbury is in rehearsals in London for, for Gypsy. Gypsy. Yes, yeah. for Gypsy. So he's going out to see rehearsals. And while he's there, he uh, happens upon a theater, or maybe like a friend has tickets for him to go see, a production of Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. And up until this point, uh, so- I, I don't know if Sondheim even was aware of Sweeney Todd. Maybe he was uh, as a character. Basically, Sweeney Todd was an urban legend in uh, English folklore mm-hmm. uh, starting in the 1800s of a barber who would slit the throats of his customers and then put them into meat pies and he appeared in a penny dreadful yes back, um called the string of pearls that was the that was the name of the story that he first appeared in string mm-hmm. of pearls and a penny dreadful is basically like a pulpy comic like a uh, cereal yeah. yeah exactly you know stories and you know there's absolutely no reason that it should become an urban legend it should have just been like this you know fictional character that everybody loves but over time people are like oh well you know it's based on a true story Mm -hmm. right and so all of a sudden became this like well is it true who knows uh but you know there's absolutely no uh evidence that sweeney todd ever truly existed there was apparently a barber in france who did uh kill a couple of people but no making of meat pies and i think that man was uh caught pretty quickly Mm -hmm. as opposed to sweeney who was just like for a long time went completely uh, unnoticed and the whole reason for the meat pies in the story apparently that was like a big theme in the mid 1800s because there was this time in england be, uh, maybe just due to like economics where meat pies were filled with dubious meat products and charles dickens writes about it in the pickwick papers where a character is like don't eat a meat pie unless you know for sure like what it's made out of like you know the woman who made it and you can trust her otherwise don't eat it because it could be god knows what oh wow i didn't know that that's funny so i think that's where the whole sweeney todd making meat pies out of people came from of like well 
we already are kind of talking about like how these meat pies could be made of anything. What if they're made of people? There's people. Yeah, very Titus Andronicus. Uh, so that's sort of the history of Sweeney Todd. And until then, he you know had a couple of different stage productions about him, and there was a few silent movies, and I think mm-hmm. one talkie, and there was even a ballet of Sweeney Todd in like yeah. the fifties, which I'm like, what? What the fuck was that? But but that was the first version where they gave him a motive. Because we need to the ballet. Before, no, uh, oh, oh, Bond, no. Yeah, Bond I, Yes, we're getting to that, oh, sorry, bitch. Sorry, sorry. Jesus Christ. Do not shoot your wad before I've given you my say. <laughs> how dare you? Zipping my my, uh, my lips. No, you can talk. Just how dare you? So, <laughs> yeah, um, up until this moment, Sweeney Todd had always sort of just been like a, you know, a very one-dimensional villain. Mm-hmm. And various versions had, you know, his accomplice be a Mrs. Lovett of some sort. Usually she was just, like, a woman who was so in love with him that she did anything he said. She was sort of a victim in her own way. And there's even a movie version of Sweeney Todd. I think it's called String of Pearls where, you know, there is a character named Joanna. And he's, like, you know, uh, forcing her to marry him and, like, getting all this treasure while killing people and making Mrs. Love and make the meat pies. Just, you know, very much, a, like, a, a true, like, caricature of a villain. And Sondheim goes to see this new play version written by uh, an English actor by the name of Christopher Bond. And it was described as a comedy with pub songs interspersed in between the scenes. And the whole thing was sort of written in a uh, prose kind of way. It's something about like how um, certain characters based on their class spoke in either blank verse or like uh, not iambic pentameter, but something close to it. So Mm -hmm. like the class distinctions were made by like how the characters spoke in terms of the structure of their dialogue. Mm -hmm. I have yet to read the Christopher Bond play. Uh, Same. I've like read I've read excerpts that Sondheim has included in books, but I've never read the whole thing. But apparently, it was much more like um, esoteric and, and poetic in the mm-hmm. way it was written. So Sondheim sees it. He's like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" Because this is, as you said, as you gave away, this is the first time that Sweeney Todd has a motive mm-hmm. uh, for what he does, and it's very uh, Count of Monte Cristo. You know, he's avenging some uh somebody who wronged him Mm -hmm. uh and it becomes about revenge and justice and sort of how that can blind you and you don't uh and you sort of you know destroy all the things that you were fighting for while you just like have this one singular uh motive so as i said sometimes he's it he loves it he wants to turn it into a musical and first he runs it by his friend john dexter who directed do i hear a waltz which blows my mind that you could make a friend uh doing that show <laughs> because it just appe- it comes it appeared to me at the time that nobody enjoyed that process so like the fact that you know he was already friends with arthur lawrence when they wrote it but to make a friend doing that show i'm like oh i guess something good did come out of it so he's friends with john dexter and he asks john who's british and he's like what do you think about a musical of sweeney todd and he's like oh that's amazing you should absolutely do it um and he also i think he runs it by leonard bernstein as well and bernstein's like i've been telling you you need to write an opera like this is your opera and so he thinks about it uh and sondheim doesn't really want it to be an opera because sondheim doesn't really like opera Mm -hmm. but he does think that he might sort of adapt the whole thing himself he runs it by christopher bond who he's like yeah sure go for it and their interpretations of their meeting is very different christopher bond was like i met him and i liked that he had absolutely no bullshit I thought to myself, what a lovely bloke. What's he doing working in the theater? And sometimes, like, well, he was late and he was drunk and he was rude. Uh, <laughs> apparently, Christopher Bond, is he still alive? No. I have no clue. Who's to say? 
uh, he was an alcoholic and finally joined AA after Sweeney Todd had opened on Broadway because there's a, apparently he was also late to opening the night of Sweeney Todd on Broadway and was drunk and like insulted Hal Prince and a bunch of other people. Oof. Yeah. Fun stuff. So he basically gives Sondheim the go ahead and Sondheim begins to work on it. Uh, and at the same time, you know, Prince is asking him to work on Pacific Overtures. Basically, like, Sondheim is working on Sweeney Todd on his own. It's like, this is not something that he's really um, gotten anyone else to help him with. He starts working on it, and he's already, like, kind of drowning because he's too... What's the word I'm looking for? He's too precious about what Bond wrote, and he doesn't want to cut anything. He doesn't know how to condense it all. He's basically originally... He was originally going to go through it, like, line by line and just, like, musically adapt it mm-hmm. all. And he's like, no, this is going to be an eight-hour show. I can't do that. He's also writing it um, as an intimate chamber piece. Like, yes. That was his vision as he was writing it. Yes. He um, wanted it to be a small show. Yes. Yes. Uh, but when you take it to Hal Prince... Well, yeah. Hal <laughs> Prince is like, I don't know the meaning of the word intimate. Uh-huh. And on top of that, like Hal, Hal Prince is not someone who's like, let's just do a story. He's like, oh, let's do a story, but in this one very specific style that's going to really distance the audience. But Hal wasn't into the vision. He was like, what is this? I don't want yeah. to do this. He didn't like the fact that it was a thriller. He didn't like the revenge stuff. He thought it was kind of gross. And like Sherlock Holmesy, he was like, yeah. I can't get over the Dickensian Sherlock Holmes. He didn't get yeah. past that yeah. initially. Um, I mean, I still don't think he did. Basically, yeah, so Sondheim has trouble adapting it and brings on Hugh Wheeler, who wrote the book for A Little Night Music, mm-hmm. and then did the new book for Candide for Hal Prince. Um which, you know, the Night Music book is, in my opinion, like, top five best librettos ever written. It's so great. I think his his new libretto for Candide is so much fun. Uh, people have since, like, padded it, but the, that 70s libretto is airtight and great. And, yeah, basically, Hugh Wheeler is brought on to condense the script. And uh, originally, sometimes, like, I want to keep the original sort of prose-like dialogue, mm-hmm. and Wheeler's like, absolutely not. He's like, I am writing my own dialogue. And then from there, Sondheim starts to write it uh spends on and off about five years writing the whole show one of the stories that he talks about is he uh plays some of the score for judy prince hal prince's wife because hal's not really into it and usually judy prince is the one who like can convince him to do it and sondheim was like you know judy this is the first show i've been working on where like you haven't asked to listen to any of it she's like well steve it's it sounds so weird and like the killing and the meat pies. He's like, let me just play the first like 30 minutes. What she does, she falls out of her chair. He's like, yeah, it's pretty good. Right. And she's like, Steve, this is your life story. (laughs) Which I still don't quite understand what she meant by that, but I like that response. She's like, Steve, this is so personal for you. He's like, I guess. Thanks, Judes. I don't know. This is also, um, the first show that Sondheim's had to do backers auditions for, I think since anyone can whistle. And the first Hal Prince musical where I think he's had to do backers auditions since Pajama Game, which that was like the whole thing with Night Music was they did it because Follies made no money and they needed a hit. And he was really nervous when they were raising the money for Night Music that they were going to have to do gasp backers auditions. And they had to do it for Sweeney Todd and they like couldn't raise any money because everyone's like, the fuck is What is this? this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are you fucking doing? But they were able to get the money eventually. Uh, budgeted for a little over a million dollars because of Hal Prince's concept, which, again, we'll get to. And they go into rehearsal. 
with the final 20 minutes not written yet, but this is the only time where, like, no one was stressed about it because, like, they knew how the show was going to end. And Sondheim had basically done all the work on the rest of the score that he's, like, it's all just about repeating motifs in these last 20 minutes. Like, there's no new music being composed here. It's all just about stringing it together. Mm-hmm. So they they were able to do that. Um, as you had mentioned, Hal Prince was reluctant to do this show. Usually he has to convince Sondheim to, to write a show that he has an idea for. This is the first time Sondheim's like, I have this amazing idea. And Prince is like, hmm, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Finally, what gets Hal Prince to say yes to it, he's like, well, it's all about social structure and class and and the industrial revolution in England and how it's wiping out the common man. So the whole thing's going to take place in a factory. Factory. Brilliant. Brilliant, but it also is a double-edged sword. How so? Because of how big that original production was, there were a lot of people who were not able to really get into the show. I think I think Sweeney could have captured more people immediately, and it also would have made money the first time around if it were not produced so extravagantly. Interesting. I think, like, I've always said I, I would love to see a production of Sweeney at, like, the Winter Garden, where it's you still have some of that grand scale to it, and you have the ability to have a big orchestra and chorus— but because the Winter Garden is so stretched out and kind of circular, it still feels very intimate. You still feel very close to the actors. And you need the characters to be closer to you in order to sort of feel the heat of the show and to get the thrills from it. In the Eurus slash Gershwin, Gershwin Theater, yeah. where Wicked is. Which is gigantic. 1900-seat theater. Yeah. Like, my God. Like, are, you could feel like a mile away from some, uh-huh. from some of the action. So I understand why a lot of people are like, I don't know about this show. You're, I'm sure more people would have been wrapped up in it at the time if it was – it doesn't have to be, like, uh, you know, five-person circle in the square like eventually it became. But mm-hmm. maybe, like, you know, the Neil Simon or uh, the August Wilson Theater, something like that, you know, where it's, like, still a 1,300-seat theater but not a stadium, uh, which, again, we'll talk more about that in a second. <laughs> but that is that is also why the show didn't recoup at the time because it cost so much to put up because of the factory set. Mm-hmm. And because it was such a huge theater, it was never really a sellout for a very long time. It became a hot ticket for like a minute, but because the sh- the theater is so big, pretty soon tickets like were always just somewhat available. Even if the theater was like ninety percent full, that still meant there were like three hundred seats available that totally. night. Totally, I never thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and part of you know making something a hit in New York anyway is to create this sense of like tickets are hard to come by. So if they sure. were in a theater with five hundred fewer seats. It would have been easier to be like, oh, you can't get a ticket to this thing. I would still like to experience that vast set where you walk into engulfed by this iron oh, yeah. boundary. I would love to have been walked in the theater and seen it. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. But because most of the – all the action really just took place in the center of it. Mm-hmm. Everything else was just sort of like uh, – it was a framing device, mm-hmm. literally. Totally. Um, with a real-life organ on stage that somebody played at the beginning of the show. Which is amazing. Yeah, although that overture is long. I mean, it's not an overture, but it's it's like it's there's in the original production, you hear it on the cast recording, but it's only maybe it's a truncated. Third. Yeah, yeah. Normally, whoever plays the organ in that production like plays like four different songs before the prologue actually starts. And you, yeah, like I have audio of the opening night, and I'm like, get to the end of it. Come, <laughs> totally. Like, he starts going into Greenfinch and Lindebar, and I'm like, move it along. Come on, <laughs> we got shit to get through. So they start previews in February. Uh, tales of how 
previews went all kind of differ. Sondheim and Len Carey, who was the original Sweeney Todd, are like, the first preview was rough, but, like, the audience got it, and, and Sondheim, like, cried backstage. He's like, I can't believe they got it. It's amazing. The producers told Hal Prince, like, we're not still sold on this. We feel like things are rough. And, Sondheim, and Prince was like, okay, we're going to shut down the theater for two days, and I'm going to restage the entire thing, and I need no one to come in while I do this. So they ba- apparently they, they restaged and reteched the whole thing in forty eight hours. No way! Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Yeah, a lot. Just I think because they were so burdened by the vastness of the set and how everything was going to move, and they had troubles with the pie shop. Mm-hmm. Once they were able to sort of get their sea legs with the show, then Prince was like, "Okay, now I can like make this flow better mm-hmm. and come up with these more striking images," which he does. Um, there were some walkouts, as there always are, and one of my favorite stories is that on the first preview, Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Lovett just completely butchers, for lack of a better term, worst pies in London. Like, just can't get it. She misses her cues. She can't get in. And what they do is, and that's now sort of become part of the staging, is they made her use her rolling pin on the dough so she would hit the dough on all the downbeats yeah. so she could find her place. Mm-hmm. And now that's become part of staging for a lot of productions of it. But I just, I love that story where she, where she like the and you can hear it in the audio like she misses so many cues she's off with the orchestra, and she's like I just can't find my place and they're like okay take this you're gonna hit it uh, pie shop one two da 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 one two and it's and it worked for her and now she it's stuck in her brain forever. That reminds me I directed a musical a long time ago for kids and they couldn't get the rhythm I love musical um. When you think about Seuss, they mm-hmm. couldn't get the uh, uh, so they had to stomp, mm-hmm. and the whole thing became about the stomp. They were like excited about. Yeah. When you think about Seuss, it was like whoa. Oh, your neighbors hate you. I know, right? Um, Oops. yeah, it's yeah, it's just finding a way to make people understand it. And apparently, with the original Follies, John McMartin could never find his place in too many mornings, so Dorothy Collins like have to pinch his arm as they were uh, embracing. They would like hold each other, and she would like pinch him when it was his time to come in. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, well, that's when you get in the 70s when you cast actors who sing and not, like, singer-singers, you know? Although I love when Mrs. Lovett is an actress first. Oh, I prefer actors first. I'm mm-hmm. just saying when you aren't necessarily trained in music and with Sondheim stuff, which is tricky, but, like, once you get it, you get it. Uh, it all makes sense. But, yeah, you sometimes when you aren't trained in music, you're like, I need someone to pinch my arm when it's my time to come in. <laughs> totally. Um. But yeah, they the only major changes that happen in previews are they cut a song, they cut the judges Joanna, which we'll talk about, and um, and the contest, right? The that happens that, that happens after they open. They, oh really? Yeah, okay. that stayed in, I believe, once they opened, and then it got cut. I think in like towards the middle of the run, maybe I can't remember. Because the original review, which we could get to later, yeah. they talk about the tooth pulling. I think, yeah. which I was surprised because. I yeah, it no, was it was doing previews. Yeah, they were yeah. trying to they were trying to shorten the show, and so they did some tightening and whatnot. And then after the fact, they cut the tooth pulling because they were like, "We're just, it's it's going long. Let's 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 speed it up." And sometimes it's just one of those magic things where like you feel like you need to cut ten minutes, and then you just cut the right ninety seconds out of one moment, and all of a sudden the other nine and uh, eight and a half minutes don't matter. It's like, oh, now it all fits all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. The show opens March first, I believe, March first, nineteen seventy nine. Let mm-hmm. me check my notes. Um, yes, March 1st, 1979 at the Eurist, now the Gershwin Theater. What happens after March 1st, we will discuss. But in the meantime, let's get into Sweeney Todd. Get into it. After an hour-long pre-discussion. Oh my god, so long. For any noobs out there, mm-hmm. 
who are brand new to the world. What is Sweeney Todd about? Oh my god. Um, I mean, the themes are run rampant. You know, revenge, obsession, injustice. Yeah, but what's the homicide. damn plot? What's the damn plot, bitch? It's about this man named Benjamin Barker, who uh, is a loving husband and a loving father, mm-hmm. and he's living in this crazy time of the industrial age mm-hmm. so everything's decrepit people are dying there's a lot of crime a lot of poverty so there's a lot of injustice during this time mm-hmm. so the person who is in charge of maintaining the law the judge, judge the turpin. honorable judge turpin mm-hmm. ironically he's the one who sends him away unjustly why because he wants his wife mm-hmm. so he kidnaps the wife rapes her takes the daughter joanna his daughter for who is one year old at that point mm-hmm. For his own. And um, Sweeney Todd comes back 15 years later after being sent to Australia, exiled. Mm-hmm. Which is what they used to do to prisoners, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they would send British prisoners to Australia. Australia was basically a, a giant jail. jail. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a country of just being jail. And if you want to know more about that, you can watch the play Our Country's Good, although I don't recommend it. Oh. It's I not a good show. They used to do it at Stage Door a lot. It just is, it's a boring play. It's a boring play. <laughs> so he's back. Um, and hell-bent on revenge and killing the judge mm-hmm. and finding out what happened to his wife and daughter. Yes. You just described the first 15 minutes. Oh, my Lord. Um, what happens when he comes home? Oh, my God. <laughs> what makes him a demon barber of Fleet Street? You're well, hell-bent. You're, you're the <laughs> absolute worst. He, what makes him Sweeney Todd? You just described him as Benjamin Barker. Well, he used to be a barber by profession, and he comes back. To try to find out what happens to his wife and child, finds out that what has happened has been awful. His wife has poisoned herself, mm-hmm. and his daughter is still in the clutches of this evil judge. Yes, yes, yes. So he goes back to work as a barber. Yes. He finds his his uh, old landlady, Mrs. Mrs. Lovitz, who, who runs pie the shop. pie shop beneath his old barber shop. Mm-hmm. And she says, here, I have your razors. Um, you can be a barber again. So he uses these razors to start his business, and also on the... On the um, chance that he'll find the judge, bring the judge back, lure him back to the barbershop so he could kill him mm-hmm. to take his revenge. Yes. Go ahead. And <laughs> a lot of complications ensue. Uh, the sailor, Anthony, who rescued Sweeney Todd back in Australia and brought him back to London, because uh, he's changed his name from Benjamin Barker to Sweeney Todd, uh, brings him back to London. And Anthony ends up falling in love with Joanna, Sweeney's daughter who, as we said, is still in the clutches of Judge Turpin, who has decided to shield her against the evils of the world. He will marry his ward. And that is, it's so gross. Although I do love the line, odd, when I offered myself to her, she showed a certain reluctance. reluctance. <laughs> Just the most oblivious, straight white man that it's like, yeah. And it's a, you, we can laugh at like how comical it is, but it's also like, there, men like that exist. I can't believe this uh, young woman who I raised from infancy and thinks of me as a father who I am a good 40 years older than is uh, reluctant to marry me. Right. But, uh, yes, Sweeney decides he's going to take his revenge. and But he cracks. There's he, a moment yes, in he Act, he almost, in Act He almost gets his revenge. The judge shows up. Mm-hmm. And just as he's about to kill the judge because Mrs. Lovett tells him to wait, She's like, be patient. You're going to figure it out. So when the judge shows up, Sweeney doesn't, like, just go for the jugular. He's like, I'm going to take a minute. He basically plays with his food. And he plays with it for a second too long because then Anthony shows up saying, oh, Joanne and I are going to elope tonight. Mm -hmm. The judge is furious. He walks out. Sweeney's hope of revenge uh, slips through his fingers. He 
snaps and he says instead of just killing the judge i'm going to kill anybody in my path until i get the judge back Mm -hmm. uh because he says we all deserve to die and on top of this he's also killed a rival barber who recognizes him from his past and was trying to blackmail him that's who i was quoting earlier botany bay for life and mrs lovett says hey who is in love with sweeney todd and has been a whole the time. entire time super in love with sweeney todd and on top of that it has the worst pies in london times being as bad as they are she can't get quality meat and she goes hey she spends all of her money on shitty meat and then can't do anything about the rest of the pies she goes hey i've got this dead body upstairs i can probably grind grind that up for some meat and uh use the rest of my resources on uh all the other ingredients that i need prime ingredients and i'll make the best pies in london which she does and sweeney's business booms and it all comes crashing together when the judge puts joanna in a madhouse and Sweeney tells Anthony uh, tells Anthony how he can get her out to bring her back to the barbershop where he will lure the judge, saying, I have Joanna here waiting for you. And the beetle shows up. The beetle uh, he kills. There's the young boy, who uh, Tobias, who worked for the barber Pirelli that Sweeney killed, now works for Mrs. Lovett. And Tobias is kind of a simpleton, but he suspects Sweeney of wrongdoings. So Mrs. Lovett locks him away in the bakehouse to sort of keep him out of... Uh, trouble while they figure out what to do with him and the rest of the stuff meanwhile there's a crazy beggar woman who's running around with a split personality and sort of uh telling everyone that mrs love is evil but nobody believes her because she's a crazy beggar woman then beggar woman shows up in sweeney's parlor right before the judge shows up he kills the beggar woman he kills the judge joanna is in there escape from the madhouse dressed as a sailor while anthony goes to grab a carriage so they can flee London. Sweeney sees Joanna, dresses as the sailor, doesn't realize it's Joanna, almost kills her, but then Mrs. Lovett screams and Joanna escapes. Sweeney goes down to the bakehouse, sees that the beggar woman is actually his old wife, Lucy, who has poisoned herself but did not die. And he snaps, kills Mrs. Lovett. Then Tobias shows up, kills Sweeney, and that is the end of the show. Well done. Thank you. I have Listeners, to are you totally confused by this point? If anyone is confused, I'm so sorry. I swear it all makes sense. But um, So why do we like this? Like, wh- why is it so good? What a, what a terrible concept. What are we learning? What are we taking away from that, right? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question, Justin. Let's talk about it. Because I think that Sweeney Todd is the same as any work in the sense that it excites us, it uh, surprises us, and it creates characters that we can understand. It's almost like a challenge. The show's like, here's this really gross premise that on paper just makes you go, oh my God, that's a musical. And then it just sort of keeps on surprising you about how it goes about its plot, its characters, and whatnot. So that way, by the time the actual killings happen and the meat pies happen, you're weirdly invested. You and know? you're weirdly, like, rooting for Sweeney Todd. Yeah. Yeah. Even though technically he's a mass murderer and a crazy person. Because we... Okay. So, it's very Breaking Bad. Let totally. Me, let, me, let me explain myself. It's very Breaking Bad. Like Breaking Bad, we have a man who is a good man, who all he wanted to do was, you know, be loved and love his family and provide for his family and do what he does. He's but, a loving husband and father. Yes. Noble. Uh, noble, almost. And then things happen to him that are unjust mm-hmm. and keep happening to him. And so he does what By he... the so-called just people. Exactly. It's totally messed up. Yes. Although, in Walt's case, you know, 
nobody gave him cancer. That was just life. But still. Sure. But still. Every, he, he got fucked over by other people in a lot of other ways. And like Sweeney, Walter White, you know, does what he can to provide for his family the only way he knows how. Or in Sweeney's case, you know, provide for himself and for the memory of his family, I should say. And over the... Over time, the reasons for why they do what they do sort of disappear and it, they just sort of become about what they're doing and because breaking bad gives us about two seasons where we see walter white uh being a good man who starts to do bad things for, in the name of uh you know what goodness. is you know, in the name of goodness yeah we keep on believing that he's a good man because we've seen the good that he once was and we understand why he was forced to do some of the things he does until eventually he just starts to do it because he's now become evil. And Sweeney Todd does a very similar thing where it gives us a solid hour of a man who really got the shitty end of the stick. The stick. Yeah. And then has one, you know, sure, he his main goal for all of Act 1 is to murder, but it's to murder one man in particular who is responsible for so much horrific shit and as we see is still doing horrific shit he's mm -hmm. not repented he's just still abusing his power and so we're like yeah no kill the dude but then he snaps and he goes on doing other things and we kind of still root for him because we remember the man we were rooting for in act one totally would you believe i've never seen breaking bad i'm sorry to spoil it for you <laughs> but you know the premise of course yeah and you know the funny thing is i avoided it because at that time well, I mean, it's been a while, right? Mm. But I was like, I can't watch something that's going to be that disturbing for me. I need I need love and light. You know, I mean, sure. whatever. So it's surprising to me how much I resonate with Sweeney Todd, which mm. is, you know, these themes of darkness. And But I think it's a cautionary tale. Absolutely. I think it, it's what would it take to take a loving husband and a loving father whose intent is for good into a mass murder. But then the tale of Sweeney Todd skin was pale and his eye was odd. He shaved the faces of gentlemen who never thereafter were heard of again. He trod a path that few have trod. It's Sweeney Todd. A demon lover of Fleet Street. Can we talk about the, um, the Hal Prince's concept? We can talk about anything yeah. you want, babe. It's your episode. Uh, yeah, we're gonna, we are gonna jump around with this one because we post company that's sort of just been the mo of this whole series because sondheim is less uh interested in like plot devices and more interested in concepts and themes and you know character did that start from company or yeah company com people were always like company is the first concept musical it's not there are other shows that do what company does which is essentially like they're not really much of a story just something about a theme but company was sort of the crystallization of the concept musical like the, the concept musical as we know it took its official form with company would you argue that that's more provocative than sweeney todd or is it different? well yes and no company just hit so close to home for its audiences it was also really the first time in a musical audiences went to the theater and saw literally themselves you know people in 1970 living on the upper west and upper east side like would go and like oh my god I have that exact same blouse and they're like we had that conversation at dinner but dinner but this is making fun of that and and showing all the 
uh, shallowness of the way that I live, and I really don't like that. Sweeney mm-hmm. Todd, you can at least have the remove of it's 19th century England, totally. and it's this really uh, melodramatic uh, grand. How do you say it? Grand Guignol, Grand Guignol, oh. Guignol, Grand Guignol. I think sure. that's how you say it. Maybe you'd know more than I. I nah. but uh, yeah, it's it's such a it's such a far removed story from what we would consider our reality that mm-hmm. the subject matter can be really off putting, but at the very least, you're like, okay, at least this is, you know, 160 years ago and blah, 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 blah. Big question here. Yes. Favorite song in this show? Oh, gosh. I know. I, I truly do not have one. I mean, my friends, a uh, little priest, um, the Joanna Act 2 sequence, um, God, That's Good, Epiphany, mm-hmm. um, Kiss Me, Yeah. the, the ballads. I, okay, I'm so, listing every single song. Absolutely. Okay, so here's mine then. Okay. Because, <laughs> Sorry, that's not well, helpful. And I only say this because I've yet to really see it done in a way that excites me, which is City on Fire. Hal Prince is a director who, like, over time in his career, like, slowly moved away from dance-heavy shows. So uh-huh. he had, like, Cabaret and Company and Follies where he was working with Ron Field and then Michael Bennett. And then eventually, like, dance starts to become less and less a part of his musicals. You have, like, the, the anomaly, like, on the 20th century. Uh, but, you know, like, Phantom, there's not a lot of dance. There's a little bit of ballet, but it's not really part of the plot. Uh, the last musical he ever really does that has a lot of dance in it that helps tell the story is Showboat. But Sweeney Todd, there's almost no dance whatsoever. And you don't need dancing necessarily in City on Fire, but there needs to be a lot of movement. And with that mm-hmm. original production, I never feel like he truly got what to do with the ensemble he was able to do like you know the anthony and joanna running across the catwalk and Mm -hmm. sweeney and mrs lovett going down the stage but i don't know like there's just such an there's such an intensity about that number and we'll talk about the movie as well i was i was disappointed that it wasn't in the movie because i'm like this is a number that would kill on film it would just be the most exciting chase sequence you could think of uh I was disappointed that a lot of stuff was cut from the film, actually. We'll talk about the okay. film. Okay. We'll talk about the film because I, I have a feeling we're, we're going to have uh, different opinions on the movie. Okay. But that is – there are a couple things from the movie I was disappointed were cut just because in my mind I'm like, I can see how this could work. And City on Fire is like the number one thing. And I've yet to really see it on stage where it like really at, like has that – excitement and tension about it where it feels like a chase sequence it's just you know the there are there are productions that do a good job and not any that have like really kind of nailed it for me uh-huh. so maybe that's why it's my favorite number because i every time i hear it i hear the potential and i just have yet to really see it fulfilled on stage whereas so many other numbers i'm like yeah no that's exactly how i would do it too totally. <laughs>
can we talk about motif? Sure. Do you want to start talk, there? Talk about whatever you want to talk about. So, okay. We can talk about motif. We can talk about character. We can talk about whatever you want. This is your episode. Well, sure. On your podcast. On my podcast. But, um, this is my house, but this is your room. <laughs> so what is motif to you? Um, and then what is a light motif? I don't know what a light motif is. I But when we talk about motif, we mean like a specific sequence of notes that can be repeated and usually it's connected to a specific character mm -hmm. yes yeah well technically a light motif is is that it's it was um created in opera mm -hmm. from wagner um and it's a theme associated with a person idea or situation mm -hmm. um a lot of movie composers use that mm -hmm. like john williams who did everything is my yes. personal hero well you will hear all about John Williams's motifs with uh, the Passion episode. Oh, really? Yes, I don't bring it up. Nor brings it up, but yes. But again, because this is so cinematic in in scope, there's so many light motifs that are connected to characters or situations or emotions. But Sondheim, he underscores this whole thing in a way that it's not just like song, scene, song, scene. Mm -hmm. There's so much bubbling under the surface. So there's just quadruple the amount of music mm -hmm. but within the underscoring and in some of the melodies you get these light motifs that whether consciously or unconsciously he is telling you what is going on mm -hmm. so if if you listen to like the whole secret of the beggar woman being mm -hmm. his wife he gives it to you in the beginning as soon as you hear a poor thing you should make the connection totally yeah you should well you should so okay yes because here's why the beggar woman has has three basic musical themes. One is her alms alms. Mm -hmm. One is city on fire, mm -hmm. and then the other one is her like split personality where she. How goes, would you like a little uh, muff this or whatever? A little yeah. squib squib. I actually I have it here, but I yeah. Don't. What are the words? Uh, god damn it! What are the words? What are her words? Which were changed also when he got talking to a Cockney dialect guy. Yes, because he wrote a set of lyrics that are on the original cast album, and then the Cockney guy was like. That's not a thing. So yeah. he changed it again. He he he's, he writes a couple of things that aren't real. And Sondheim is such a stickler about like what's realistic, what actually is there. And I'm like, it's, not, it's also a musical. Like and melodrama. It's yeah, a melodrama. You can make it up, bitch. But so she has one where it's um, how would you like a little squifty, a little jig jig, a little bounce around the bush? Wouldn't you like to push me crumpy? It looks to me, dear, like you got plenty there to push. Saying that Anthony is well endowed. Uh, that is so that music there. Is the same music that plays in Poor Thing when Sweeney's wife goes to the minuet, the, yes. Yes. When because and you find out in Poor Thing that the judge is uh, after he's sent Sweeney off on a trumped up charge and tells the Beatle to get Sweeney's wife Lucy to come to his house. Oh, I'm so, you know, repentant, come to my house and I'll tell you what I intend to do to like get him out of this. She shows up, there's a party going on, and the judge rapes her while the minuet plays. And that minuet is the music that the beggar woman sings every time she kind of cracks and she mm -hmm. sings the squiff dear blah 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 bum. i did not realize that that was what it was until I. four years after i finally like got it like four full years of just being in sweeney todd and speaking of stage door i remember because friend of the pod ali gordon who's going to be on this series at one point we were uh she was like at the brilliant other ali gordon I brilliant ali gordon she's amazing she was on the other end of the dining hall and it was like maybe it was breakfast or lunch i can't remember but i was like just humming something to my head and then I made the connection that the minuet is the same as the Becker Woman's music. Mm -hmm. And I ran across the dining hall. I was like, Ellie, did you know that this is what this is? And she's like, yeah, it's pretty cool, right? And I'm like, no one told me. 
I discovered something in my deep dive on Sweeney just this last week mm. of something that, that blew my mind, which I'll get to in a second. Um, but yes, this this motif theme pervades throughout the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Have we talked about the Dies Irae? No, talk about it. The Dies Irae, do you know what it is? It's a, uh, it's a thing. <laughs> it mean, yes, it's a thing. It, it literally means Day of Wrath, mm-hmm. and it, it has Roman Catholic origins. It was a 15th century medieval hymn. Um, again, meaning Day of Wrath, and it was a, a mass for the dead. Mm-hmm. And you'll actually find that theme in tons of movies, um, quoted in like Lord of the Rings and all that stuff. And it's, um, can I play it for you? It goes like this. Hi, da, da, da. Go for it. And the words, I'm gonna butcher which I first heard in Rent. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yes. That's right at the beginning of La Vie Boheme. Yes. Uh-huh. And when I, I didn't know what that was back then, but like. So this theme, this D-S-E-R-E-D-S-E-L-A, mm-hmm. Sondheim uses as one of the main themes throughout. Mm-hmm. So much of the melodies of certain songs or the underscoring is based on D-S-E-R-E. Yeah. It, isn't the accompaniment for Attend the Tale, isn't it uh, that it's something with that like inverse or something like that or like yeah. it's up a third or something like that i say derivative because like he either inverses it or like changes one note but mm-hmm. it's always like it can go back to that as its root uh even like swing your razor da 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 just yep. that that whole theme the thing that we'll get to kiss me eventually but like you know he means to marry me monday i'd rather die uh-huh. that's it i'd rather die on the words i'd rather die I mean, mm-hmm. that's so ridiculous Anyway. It also shows that Joanna is truly the daughter of Sweeney Todd because musically they have some DNA there. Absolutely. Because Anthony don't, don't sing that line at any point, I don't think. Well, no, he does when they're doing together. He goes, it's me, you'll marry on Monday. That's what you do. Actually, no, she goes, and gladly, sir. She's the one who always does that. She answers him. Uh, even totally. knowing who you were. Yeah, I don't think he ever I don't think he ever sings those notes uh, in Kiss Me. I think it's just her. It's just her. Oh, interesting. We just recovered something. We did. Oh, my God. So he quotes the Dies Irae, like, directly the first time Mm -hmm. i believe oh in the prologue organ prologue but then the first time in the proper show when sweeney said what happens then well that's the play you hear in the orchestration or something like Mm -hmm. that um just stuff like that and so like deep diving my brain was exploding this last week going like oh my god it's there it's there it's there so in my notes i've been writing all this Mm -hmm. like scribble scratch down but it's just i can't find a flaw with this score there's no flaw. Uh, everything is well-structured, well-placed. It's intelligent, but it's also theatrical and emotional. The only thing I can argue if someone's like, oh, it's not for me, a lot of the music is is on the darker side. And so for people who prefer, you know, their Boppery stuff or their Rodgers and Hammerstein, this is not that kind of score. There, there are moments of that, but mm-hmm. it's threaded with a lot of darker, uh, more tense moments and then i can also argue if someone thinks that the show is overlong like you know they get bored with the contest or they get bored with parlor songs which parlor songs has been trimmed so that shouldn't be an issue anymore yes, but correct. when you listen to the cast recording you're like i can't believe this went on for as long as it did and everyone was just okay with it right it's just so long um yeah that's correct like the organ thing you were saying at the beginning yeah is a little long it's like get fucking on with however it. the organ thing starts with another motif the alms alms motif uh, no, that, that's not what they do. There's a half-step motif. So if you realize that all of the tragic characters, they he writes in a lot of close steps together. 
It's all very, as opposed uh-huh. to like, I feel you, Joanne. Uh-huh. Very long step. So um, the begging woman has his ba-ba motif, which comes actually when he discovers it's it's Lucy. Yeah. Ba-ba, you could, arms, arms. Well, so he tells you pretty early on, musically speaking, what who the beggar woman is mm-hmm. with, the min, with the minuet. He then, like, makes it super obvious, and now's as good a time as any to talk about this. As I said, we're jumping all over the place, and I place. couldn't fucking care. Oh, yeah. When the beggar woman shows up in Sweeney's parlor in Act 2, this is at the end of City on Fire sequence, and she, she's looking for the beetle, and uh, Sweeney sees her, and he's like, what are you doing here? And she just keeps on, like, you know... She, uh, she she keeps on, like, muttering to herself. And she has this thing. Cause the first time she meets Sweeney is at the beginning of the show when he shows up with Anthony. And she's singing Alms, Alms. And she says to Sweeney, like, don't I know you, mister? Which is all half steps yeah. down, which is associated with death. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And it's at the it's it's a red flag at the beginning because it's meant to imply that, like, Sweeney's been to England before. And, like, he has history here. And, like, oh, there might be people who recognize him. That's sort of, like, what it's implied in that scene when she first yes. says, hey, don't I know you, mister? Then she shows up again in his parlor, and it's the only other time that he sees her. And she says it again, don't I know you, mister? And the movie makes it very clear when she says that. Because the movie, I think, that's the first time they meet. They cut her original entrance and have her show up for the first time with Anthony right before Joanna. Again, we're jumping oh, all over yeah. the place. Yeah. Right. Which, which, again, we'll talk about. Uh, but so when she says, don't I know you, mister? And then he cuts her throat. The music that's played as her throat is cut is the music that Sweeney sings in Epiphany when he sings, and I'll never see Joanna, and also goes, and my Lucy lies in ashes. And it goes, the ba, 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 ba. And it is another key. Totally. It's it's like, if you don't get it, now you get it. And he does say, like, I wanted it to be this big twist in the final sequence that uh, it's his wife, and I'm like, you give it away a lot in the score, which is fine. Like, I think, because you can look at it as two ways. You can either discover that she's his wife when he discovers it, and it's this big shock. Or you could have what my mom had when we watched the movie, which is when she sings the final Don't I Know You, Mister, you think in that moment he's going to realize it's her. Because it's a little, because that's when it clicks uh, in the movie for a lot of audience members. You see Laura Michelle Kelly's face, and you're like, shit, that's his wife. Because it's the first time you see the beggar woman's face totally. Yes, 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 yes. And because it, it shows up clear as day, and she's like, don't I know you? And I remember the audience, when I saw the movie with my mom, was like, oh, my God. And you think he's going to recognize her, but he just cuts her throat instead, and that music plays. And I remember the entire audience going, <gasps> Right? Yeah. So he it, wrote the beggar woman's lullaby for the London production. Well, that's what I want to talk about. Yes. Beggar woman's lullaby. I don't like this song, and I'll tell you it's why. It's not necessary. It's, not, it's a hat on a hat on a hat. He finished the hat, and he put more hats on it. He talks about all the time how one of his biggest issues was that audiences never really collectively got who the Becker woman was at the same moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, It changed night to night on Broadway, and even then it was like different sections. Some people realized who she was halfway through Act 1. Some people realized it when Sweeney realized it or right before he killed her. Some people walked out of the theater still not knowing who she was, Uh to which I'm like, how can you not? Like – it's by that point it's like i have nothing to say to you <laughs> and he really wanted the audience to all get it together so when they went to london to do the show which was for the most part the exact same production as broadway he wrote what he called the beck roman's lullaby so with the right-handed sweeney for the first time right yes because dennis quilly was right-handed because len Carew and george hearn were left-handed and he wrote the line or i don't know if it was him or hugh wheeler at last my right arm is complete again and they had to cut out right arm because both hearn and Carew were 
left-handed. Anyway, sorry. Tangents. We digress. He writes the Beg Roman's lullaby, which is sung by the Beg Roman as she enters Sweeney's parlor. Normally what happens is the Beg Roman shows up because it also was Sweeney's apartment uh, when he was Benjamin Barker. Mm -hmm. And in Poor Thing, where Mrs. Lovett talks about what happened to Lucy, there's this whole pantomime that happens in the upstairs area, and the Beg Roman starts to do some of the actions from Poor Thing. And then Sweeney shows up. In London, she does all those actions, and then she starts to sing the Beg Roman's lullaby, which is the melody line of Poor Thing Mm -hmm. to um, what she sings to, like, an imaginary baby. And then Sweeney shows up. And it was Sondheim saying, like, I figured if they didn't get it was Lucy at this moment, I couldn't help them. Yeah, they're dumb. Um, And he's like, so I, I changed the aha moment to earlier just so that way everyone could collectively get it together but they still didn't apparently right? yeah he was like yeah is it was the exact same thing like people got it earlier people got it at that moment people got it in the finale people walked out not knowing he's like so you know do the lullaby or don't it, and she know. even sings to the baby like my joe my jing yeah it's like joe duh yeah, Joanna, yeah it's i think it's unnecessary and it's stalling <laughs> in the moments of the show where we need to get to the end uh yeah i don't care for it it's fine it's a pretty song because it's the same melody line as poor thing and i love mm-hmm. poor thing but you know it's it's un- unnecessary it's so unnecessary yes, agreed get rid of her get rid of her get rid of just her just get rid of her and they do it in all the concert versions like they did it with audra and victoria clark and like they're wonderful singers i don't know if they did it with victoria clark they definitely did it when i saw audra do it with emma thompson uh-huh. uh because you know you give audra more to sing you just do it of course but yeah it's so unnecessary get her out of there he you know he's really good at motifs he doesn't really start to do it all that much until really Sweeney, Sweeney I want to say. Todd, right? Yeah, he has like repri- – he does reprises and things like company mm-hmm. and night music. But but he talks about how nothing is reprised even though it technically is. He says just the motifs are repeated. Yes. But he doesn't like to say there are reprises in Sweeney Todd. There, well, because there aren't. Like no song is repeated on its own mm-hmm. as a standalone. Just things – yeah, clutches of melodies are used again. In the way that they are in opera, and mm-hmm. the way that we will eventually see in things like you know, uh, Evita and Les Mis and Miss Saigon. Mm-hmm. Although I don't want to say that Sweeney uh, inspired Evita, because technically speaking, Evita came out two years, three years earlier on the ca- on the concept album. So it's not like Andrew Lloyd Webber repeating melodies yeah, yeah, yeah. was inspired by Sweeney Todd. <laughs> that didn't happen. But I do think that Sweeney Todd has inspired that with other people. Anywho, and I would argue like. Lame is, and I love lame is, you know I do. Yes. But, like, it's not necessarily motif-based. Um, yeah, it's not motif-based. It's based like character terms. melody, which is, I guess, the same thing. But it's, it's not, I wouldn't even call it character melody. I would, I think lame is uses motifs for plot points rather than for characters. So, like, when a character gets to a certain moment in their life, a certain melody line comes about. So, like, Fontaine singing to an imaginary Cosette is the same melody line as Eponine singing about an imaginary Marius. Oh, totally. That's super um, astute. Absolutely. Yeah. Or, like, Val- uh, Valjean's soliloquy at the beginning of the show where he's at the crossroads is the exact same music as Javert's Suicide. Like, literally, note by note, it's the exact same song. Yeah. It's just two different men at different points in their lives coming to the exact same kind of crossroads, and one chooses life and one chooses death. Wow. Oh, yeah. No, I'm I'm on top of this yeah shit. you are ah uh, this is why i have a podcast everybody it's true all right you sir how about a shame come and visit your good friend sweetie you sir 
true, sir. Welcome to the grave. I will have vengeance. I will have salvation. Who said? Epiphany, he took a month to write, I believe. Because he had an issue figuring out exactly what Epiphany was going to be about. Mm -hmm. Because apparently in the play, Bond's play, all that happens is... It's like one line, right? Yeah, he's like, I, I killed and I like it and I'm going to kill again because I now have a thirst for blood. And sometimes like that's a little too simplistic and I don't know how to make that a song. And then Hugh Wheeler's like, well, maybe it's a religious epiphany that he's having, which with that um, idea is what gave Sondheim the title for the song. But he was like, I don't think it's religious, and basically came to the point of, like, you know, he had, like, basically it's just he has a mental breakdown. There are religious themes, though, throughout the show, which I'll have to explain my, yes, please my do. theory. Um, yes, so again, the Dies Irae is quoted directly mm-hmm. on They All Deserve to Die. Boom, 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 boom. Dies Irae is in the mm-hmm. accompaniment. There's that chug because of the, the, we didn't talk about the machinery theme, the engines that are constantly chugging along throughout mm-hmm. the show. There's that. Um, that show is brilliant because it goes it, you have to musically reflect him going from wanting to kill one man to saying fuck it I'm gonna kill everybody mm-hmm. um I love um the Lucy themes in it the alms alms theme mm-hmm. or the Lucy lies in ashes um practicing on less honorable throats I'm mm-hmm. obsessed with that it's a great line because especially who's the most honorable the judge right mm-hmm. but he's not though he's actually the fucking yeah. most evil man in the whole show and also less honorable throats are like people who maybe don't deserve to be killed by me as much as this man does but like i'm still gonna fucking practice on them because we all deserve to die so they don't have the honor of my killing totally um but again like he plays with like playing god Mm -hmm. and like is he god is he a devil is he trying to right wrongs in society because if we all deserve to die what does he say that um Wicked people should die. Mm-hmm. The lives of the wicked should be made brief. Mm-hmm. For the rest of us, so he puts himself in the good camp. Yes. We need to die so that death will be a relief. Yes. Um, also, do you know about the, the, the ending of that song? Uh, there was discussion on, on how it should end, on whether it should have a button or if it should just go into the next scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I believe the cast recording uses both. Yeah. Well, the cast recording doesn't have a definitive, like, end chord. Yeah. Because it, like, ends on a major chord, and then you hear, like, a hint of a minor chord into a major again, into a hint of minor. Yeah. Um, how Prince fought for an applause break, mm-hmm. He's especially because it's so dark. He's like, we need that moment of breath. Yeah. We need that levity. Well, and Sondheim says one of the benefits of the applause break is because that, like, really dark moment just happened, there can be a long beat, and then there comes a laugh. When Mrs. Lovett goes, well, that's all very well. Mm-hmm. Um, because then, because that's sort of the whole thrust of Mrs. Lovett is that in all of these really dark moments, she's able to say something that makes the audience laugh. She, is, she always is the comic relief, uh, even though she's really just as monstrous as he is. And in some ways worse because she gaslights him into doing some totally. of the things. Totally. She's yeah. like the, the Lady Macbeth. Absolutely. And Hugh Wheeler talked about it. He was like, he said something along the lines of, um, we wanted to make characters under, uh, likable, but not necessarily, uh, rootable, if that makes sense. Uh, so he was like, he was saying how it always blew him away 
how many people were rooting for Mrs. Lovett when he's like, she has absolutely no redeeming qualities other than the fact that she's funny. Uh, (laughs) And part of that was because Angela Lansbury also played her. And audiences, that was just inherent in her casting. People like, oh, I like her. And that was sort of something that happened with a lot of Mrs. Lovett's for a long time. You know, Dorothy Loudon replaced Angela Lansbury. Mm -hmm. Who was brilliant. Brilliant. Um, we, We could talk about her for a while, too. But, but on the paper, on the page, yeah. it's also written – I mean, yes, Angela won the Tony for a good yeah. reason in her characterization. But, like, his stuff is so classical and, like, long lines for the most part. Mm-hmm. And hers is so pattery, yeah. which is, like, the only musical comedy in the show. Yes. And she's also kind of a sociopath. In the same, and Angela Lansbury, I think more than anybody actually – weirdly plays the sociopath because she really is so unfeeling other than her lust for Sweeney because the way that she the way that Angela Lansbury so casually says Lucy poisoned herself and I tried to stop her but she wouldn't listen to me she like says it like it's you know how's the weather today not even thinking you know oh I'm totally lying to this dude just so that way he can sort of move on from the from the wife uh and I, I'm bringing that line up because it's important to remember when we talk about the movie later and mm-hmm. and why my feelings on the movie are partly why they are. She full she full blown lies to him, right? Mm-hmm. Has no guilt about it whatsoever, and Angela always is trying to play the positive. So in the finale, when they're in the bakehouse and he realizes it's Lucy, and he's like, uh, he says, "You knew she lived." She goes, I was only thinking of you. And he sings Lucy. And she goes, you're Lucy. The crazy old hag. Is that how you want to know how she ended up? The way Dorothy Loudon says you're Lucy is with so much vitriol. Like, clearly this woman has hated Lucy for years because that bitch got Benjamin Barker. Mm-hmm. She, you even hear the resentment in Poor Thing. Like, that fucking idiot. Her husband goes off and, like, she could have had everything in this world if she played her cards right. But she was too good and pure. So now she's wherever she is. Like, that's Mrs. Lovett's mentality. And you hear it in the music, too. You know who she calls Lucy poor thing? Mm -hmm. In the final sequence, Mm -hmm. she also refers to Lucy as a thing. I forget the exact lyric, but she's like, would that thing have loved you? Would that thing have cared for you like me? I love that because you could also talk about how, like, people are no longer people. They're more like inanimate objects. Yep. Which goes into the whole, like, psychopaths. You know, they don't see people as people. They see people as just yeah meat yeah there yeah there's a there's a thing that's standing there and i can totally push it aside or knock it to the ground totally um the way that dorothy yeah dorothy alana just like you're lucy like fully hated this woman not because this woman was ever rude or anything literally just because she had what she wanted and resented her forever because of it and yeah she's like as you said she has the whole um could that thing have cared for you like me and the whole poor thing there's no care about her when she says poor thing because you hear it in the original song when she's talking about what happened to Lucy about how the judge raped her. As the second half of the song goes on and we get to the part where Lucy goes to the party to get raped, the music picks up and the way that Mrs. Lovett's singing about it is not like a this terrible thing that happened. She's like, okay, and then this thing happened to this bitch. Oh my God, and then this. Oh, and then she got raped in front of everybody. And like, and you can hear the sort of relish in her voice as she's singing about it like, ah, got what she deserved and it's even if that's not in the words it's very clearly in the subtext because of the way the music builds 
the way that the tempo is increasing, she's just so excited by it. Uh-huh. All. Partly because it's in her mind, oh, it's such a good story. And she even says, like, oh, you do like a good story, don't you? But also because of who it's happening to. Of course, when she throws that poor thing, poor thing, they're having this ball all in masks. There's no one she knows, they're poor dear, poor thing. She wanders tormented and drinks, poor thing. The judge has repented, she thinks, poor thing. Oh, where is Judge Turpin, she asks. He was there all right, only the folk and fright. She wasn't no match for such craft, you see. Actually, I want to hear your thoughts on the judges, Joanna. It was cut because didn't Hal Prince think it was too much? Hal Prince thought it was too much. He said it was too much to ask of the audience to watch a man whip himself yeah. and then reach and climax or- and reach orgasm with it as well. It was also cut for time because sure. they realized it was it was in that time in previews where they were trimming stuff. They're like the show's three hours and it's more that the first act has a, has a sag in the middle. So they were trying to find moments in the middle of Act One to cut so they could get to the end of it. But he wanted the judge to have a musical moment, right? Yes. Um, which then when he cut part of the contest and then reinstated it, mm-hmm. he was like, "Oh, this actually kind of works." Yeah. Or something. Um, I don't think it's necessary. Maybe that's controversial. I don't. I just don't like. I mean, I guess when you hear him sing Joanna, Joanna before he gets killed, yeah, that harkens back to that song. It does. But I don't know. It's yeah. It's similar to like Rose's turn when she sings, "The mom is talking uh, soft," and it, "Mom is talking soft" was got cut. cut. Yeah. And so sometimes like it's not a reference anymore. But he's like, but Bonnie says, "Don't care." But <laughs> totally. A part of me is also like. Rose never heard Mama's Talking Soft. That was something that June and Louise sang in the distance away from her. So, like, in reality, Steve, which is what he's always talking about, there would be no reason for Rose to sing that as a reprise anyway. So, fuck you and the horse you rode uh-huh. in on. But <laughs> the, I only say that because he's so big on, like, well, realistically speaking. And I'm like, yeah, well, in that scene, Louise and June are up in the flies of the theater watching Rose. She doesn't know what they're singing about. So why would she reprise it? Anyway, um, <laughs> that's just me. I have a lot of thoughts on him and, uh, and how judgy is, is on, how judgy he is on himself. And there are times when I'm like, okay, that's fair. And then times when I'm like, no, stop it. You're being stupid. I mean, he's just a genius. The way he, he – I read in that Finishing the Half book that mm-hmm. he, his choice of Kearney's Lane, there's a yep. whole section about, like, why he chose it. I'm like, what a well, freaking Because it's also not dude. real. Kearney's Lane doesn't exist. Yeah, he, totally. He's like, this is the reason why I made up this address. Um, or mm-hmm. this street that doesn't exist because it needed the K. I, I needed it to be lane. I need to be an open vowel. Um, the way the notes pro- progressed. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he, yeah. he took he took I think two different things that exist like lane and Kearney and then mashed them up together. But so the judge is Joanna. The other thing is like it's supposed to kind of offer some insight into the judge because you see it's part uh-huh. of the reason why he whips himself is because he's tempted by Joanna and his lust for her, but he knows it's sinful. And he's begging God to deliver him. So he's punishing himself while he's sort of spying on her. And it creates this combination of pleasure and torture, which then leads to his climax at the end. As I said, it's supposed to give us this insight into him. I really don't think it offers much other than the fact that like, he's somewhat conflicted about it, but not enough to not go through with forcing her to marry him. And there's also something he said about like just making the judge a truly repellent character, because mm-hmm. uh, we, yes, nobody's all black and white, but it's to say that like you know, this character's so far gone. He's at a point in his life where like 
this is who he is now. These are his ways. He's not going to change. Uh, he's too far gone. He's lived this way for so long that there's no way he can repent. So, like, what's the point of even showing any kind of inner conflict that he has? We know that he's that it's not going to accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. Is it to get us to like him a bit more? There's nothing he does after that song that makes him remotely likable. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's necessary. Agreed. Yeah. You know what I wanted to share with you, which I just learned and it blew my mind? Mm-hmm. Um, he had this wife, you see, right? Mm-hmm. Where else do you hear that? Well, you're in the finale. No, no, not lied at all. No, I never lied. Ba, 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 ba. Those notes together. He had this wife, you see. Green finch and linnet bird. Oh! Isn't that crazy? Green finch and linnet bird, nightingale, blackbird, yeah. And arguably, I know that was on purpose. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. sure it well, was. It's, I mean, it's like a dissonant version of green finch and linnet bird. Yeah, which, I mean, which, the chords are different, yeah. I think, but. Um, which side. Something I love about Green Finch and Leatherbird. First of all, love that song. She's a bop. Beautiful. Uh, the New York Times review for this show, and we'll get, more, I'll talk more about it with the legacy. References Green Finch and Leatherbird, as do a couple of other reviews that are like, "What a pretty song." Sometime, why don't you write more of that? <laughs> oh my god. They're like you listen. They're like you listen to that Green Finch and Leatherbird song, and you're like, "That's nice. Could use a little bit more of that in your show, Steve." Although I think I liked that one the best when I first heard it as a kid. Obviously, I was like, oh, it's the prettiest one. Yeah. Well, also, but hot take, Sarah Rice is still my favorite vocal Joanna. Uh, there's just such a lightness about yes. her soprano that it just – and so simply performed. It just mm-hmm. lets the song be the song. And, I mean, phenomenal voices since then. Harlan Blackwell and uh, – Lisa Roman. Lisa Roman, uh, Lauren Molina. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, yeah, like all wonderful versions. Uh Something about Sarah Rice's version because it is so classical and womanly, but also very pure and 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 simply presented. Uh, yeah, I, I can listen to her version of Green Finch all day, every day. It's just so gorgeous. I want to talk about Worst Pies in London for a hot second. Great. One of the, if not the greatest, intro songs to a character of all time. Yes. Because it not only offers a nice sort of uh, reprieve for the audience of, like, all this darkness, where Mrs. Lovett just Doom comes on. Yeah, Doom and Gloom. Lovett coming on in a burst of fire. Uh, and... It's funny, it's everything, it's all over the place, and it tells you everything you need to know about the character, how her brain works, how she views herself, and how she views the world. She's very realistic about the world, but she clearly has no um, objective objectivity about herself. And you hear that, because she, she has two lines that go, oh, this woman lies all the time. Uh-huh. One is when she's talking about how her neighbor, Mrs. Mooney, also has a pie shop, which does well, but clearly she's killing cats to and she's so above that yeah. i would never and do that goes, in my uh, just, shop just just the thought of it's enough to make you sick, sick. and i'm telling you them pussy cats is quick <laughs> it's which gets a laugh because it's like oh clearly she's tried to but she never says like okay between you and me i totally have she's like i would never do that and besides they're much too fast anyway it's like well how do you know they're so fast mm-hmm. then at the very end she goes oh a woman alone with limited wind 
and it's like clearly this bitch does not have limited wind. She's been chatting up a storm totally. for two and a half minutes, un uninterrupted, full blown monologue. So like has no self awareness. On on top of that, lies up her asshole. Mm -hmm. It's all you need to know about her. A customer. What? What you rush? What you hurry? You gave me such a fright. I thought you was a ghost. Half a minute can't you sit? Sit you down. Sit. All I meant is that I haven't seen a customer for weeks. Did you come in for a pie, sir? Do forgive me if it has a little bite. What is that? But you think we are the plague? From the way that people keep avoiding. No, you don't. Haven't done but try, sir. But there's no one comes in even to inhale. Right you are, sir. Would you like a drop of ale? Mind you, I can't hardly blame them. These are probably the worst pies in London. I wrote, I wrote in my notes so much scribble because I had so much to say and I can't read oh, I any of my my writing i threw my notes away <laughs> fully threw them away one of my favorite moments going on to um my friends yes is when he takes the razor out mm -hmm. i don't like when the music starts before he touches the razor yeah some productions like it like she presents the box and then the music starts it's like yeah. no like you hear the mark tree as he picks the razor up it's like magical it's like picking, picking up a yeah. magic wand or something well that's why so that's that's how you hear Sondheim's influence from film scores because you can see that happening in a movie where like the box opens and also you hear the chimes going like mm -hmm, that is, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know this is what we what I mean when you and I talk about this and I'm like, if you just trust the material, <laughs> you can have the most amazing night of theater with Sweeney Todd. If you're so intent on doing your own thing with it, you're probably gonna ruin it. Just, just saying. Right. Um, like don't put it in space. Don't. You know. Oh, I kind of want to see that. <laughs> Don't put it underwater. Aren't we all underwater in Sweeney Todd? Everyone's drowning. There's a hole in the world like a great black pit. I say make that subtext reality, Henny. Jumping forward, I love the fact that the last thing you see in the original production is he has a last word. He looks at the audience, so he's mm -hmm. looking at this the vermin in the world mm -hmm. that inhabit this awful world that are filled with shit. Mm -hmm. It's like, fuck you, I'm slamming the door on you. Yeah. It's so powerful. And I that, love that and that moment. final look he and Lovett have together when they're walking off. So good. So good. Um, let's move on, shall we? Let's move on. Um, can we talk about Pirelli's miracle elixir? We absolutely can. Um well actually no. Because we haven't really talked about the lovers a good deal. I would and we, Okay. And we oh, totally. And we referenced Greenfinch and we referenced Joanna, but I wanted to discuss it for a quick second. Greenfinch and Lindenbird is Joanna's intro song. And she's on the balcony of her home, mm -hmm. singing about the birds in the cages and how beautifully they sing. Um, and wondering why. Because they are caged. Mm -hmm. And she relates it to herself. Which I like. It shows that, in jo that it shows that Joanna is intelligent and that she is introspective and that she is capable of thought and feeling. Um, all within two and a half minutes. And she's also very, very miserable. If I cannot fly, let me sing. So it's like, if I can't leave my cage, teach me how to, like, enjoy it or pretend to enjoy it. Because I simply can't. She's we, When we're meeting Joanna, she's already kind of at the end of a rope. And she's probably only, like, 16, 17. <laughs> so totally. very dark roads ahead. And what I also love is this kind of mirrors form in a lot of ways. Because Anthony falls in love with Joanna on sight from her balcony. Much like how Hero falls in love with Philia from the balcony on sight. Um, but whereas forum hero's like oh she's just so beautiful i'm in love with her anthony it's very similar like he you know it's very much her beauty but he also kind of falls in love with how sad she looks and how miserable she kind of looks 
because it makes him go like, why is this beautiful woman so sad? How can I learn more about her? How mm-hmm. can I like help her in any way? He's a good person, if not necessarily the deepest of people. Uh, but he's so idealistic. Yeah. The way Sweeney was. Mm-hmm. He sees everything through this rose-colored glasses, you a- know? As Sweeney says, you are young. The world has been kind to you. You will learn. Mm-hmm. And I think, yes, Anthony does learn, I think, at the very, 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 very end of the show, in that final moment, that the world is awful. Because um, he sees, you know, he meets the judge and knows that the judge is awful, but as far as he's concerned, the world can still be a good place. Mm-hmm. And the movie actually does kind of... Um, highlight how like idealistic anthony is and how being in a madhouse has uh, kind of hardened joanna a little bit mm-hmm. which i really like where she's like oh so we run away and all our dreams come true anthony he's like yeah i hope so it's i like it it's, i think the movie's good but they still sing what they cut out in the movie they still sing the reprise because of... in the movie joanna is now like fully uh traumatized and there's no way she can sing along with him they also cut kiss me in the movie because... oh that's a travesty well, well the movie doesn't necessarily in the movie Anthony is in love with Joanna. They don't really say that Joanna is in love with him. I think in the movie they make it more that he's a way out for her. And I think she likes him. I think she's attracted to him and he's like he's a sweet enough guy. Mm-hmm. But I don't think she's like, Oh my god, the love of my life. They make her more of a uh she's more of a plot point in the movie, but also the few things you see of her, like she is pragmatic and closed off and will not show her cards to anybody. And also kind of has a bit of a death wish because when she gets into Sweeney's chair, she doesn't run away. She's just kind of like, she squirms a bit and she's like, I don't know. I guess if this is it, maybe this is it. And part of me's like, that makes sense considering the life this bitch has had. Like part of me, if I were her, like, you know, oh, locked up for years with this lecherous man who then's like trying to fucking marry me and fondle me. And then the only person who's like my beacon of any hope is this fuck boy who doesn't mm. who doesn't know what's up and on top of all that i just watched a woman get killed and then watched my surrogate father get killed and now i'm like you know what if this is the end fine i guess go for it just Enjoy. do it yeah whereas the show it's more about the operatic quality and like they're still the young lovers and despite everything that they've encountered they're still optimistic and so them singing together because he also talks about sondheim talks about how um when people sing in unison it's meant to be like uh a cohesive thought that they have, which he thinks is unrealistic most of the time. Totally. Well, we'll get to that in the choruses with uh, Crowley's Miracle. Yes, we'll yeah, get yeah. to that. But it's why in, like, Passion, um, very rarely does anyone ever sing in unison, and it's usually lovers, and it's meant to sort of highlight the simplicity of their thoughts. Like, oh, Clara and Giorgio think they're in love because, oh, we think as one. And, like, it takes Bosco to be like, the fuck are you talking about? Mm-hmm. That's not love, you stupid idiot. And that's sort of what he's doing with the lovers in this joanna and and anthony they have thoughts that kind of cross over each other like in kiss me they sing different lines and then they come together and the i loved you even as i saw you and then in the reprise and they go and we'll sail the world and see its wonders showing that like while they have these you know emotions and joanna probably has a bit more intelligence than anthony does i don't think sondheim necessarily thinks very highly of the depth of their intelligence in this show but by the sheer fact that they are able to sing in unison so much that like oh their thoughts are so one but i think that's also from the tropes of operatic of uh opera of opera and musical theater tropes of like the young innocent kind of stupid lovers yeah sondheim has a lot of uh toxic feelings about love Monday, that's what you'll do. And glad-
Why don't you tell the audience about um, Sondheim's views on the chorus? He doesn't like when choruses all sing in unison, like in a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical or, um, you know, any truly any musical where a full ensemble of like 30 all sings the exact same thought. He's mm-hmm. like, no one has the exact same thought all at once. Uh, so he tries to justify unison as, as much as possible. So that leads us to Pirelli's Miracle Elixir. Yes. Where we have audience, uh, we have a, a chorus of spectators all singing various thoughts as Tobias is trying to pimp out Pirelli's Miracle Elixir. Mm-hmm. And this whole, uh, this whole structure is used in God, That's Good, cut in with uh, 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 Mrs. Lovett's, you know, living her best life. Mm-hmm. And it eventually gets to a point where the chorus will build to them all singing in unison. Yes. So they start all various counterpoints. It's, uh, it's a shame they let these merchants on the sidewalks. Um, he sm- says it smells like piss. This is piss. Piss with ink. And it builds as more people start getting annoyed that what they just bought from Tobias is nothing more than urine and ink. Until they all cut to the same point of like, we want the money back and where is Pirelli? So it, he is able to dramatically justify it for himself, and it works. Totally. Um, he also parodied opera choruses, mm. um, both this and the opening of Act Two. But I think he wanted to get those overlapping thoughts, and he wanted to make sure that everybody in the chorus had, in the ensemble, mm-hmm. that is, had individuality. Mm-hmm. There was the drunk one, and the smart one, and the handsome one, and the sloppy one, and the whatever. Yeah. Um, so that they all have their voices peeking out, which we can get to later with uh, God That's Good and the yeah. fragments of words. But um, that culminates and builds to them saying things together finally mm-hmm. until the reveal of Pirelli. Yeah. Which I love the fact that he's this over-the-top mockery of an Italian mm-hmm. opera singer. And I love the fact that it's so over-the-top because, it, again, it's a hint into the fact that that's false. Yeah. It's a, it's a facade. It's an, it's an Irish lad. Yes. pretending to be Italian. Totally. Or what he thinks Italian is. Well, everybody's pretending to be something. There's always deceit and, like, mm-hmm. again, the duality of good and evil and, like... Lucy's pretending to be dead all this time. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> she certainly that, is. That fucking beggar woman, she's a lying sack of shit. <laughs> she's a lying bitch. Telling everybody that she's dead. She's not dead. Um, yeah, no, it's great. I... I think it... Uh, what's interesting about God That's Good is that, you know, yes, the chorus all has their own opinions when they're asking for pies and whatnot, and then they all eventually get uniform on how much they're loving the pies, and they just want more and more and more, more hot pies. Part of the stuff about, like, all the different attitudes in the garden with the customers isn't necessarily what the actors are singing. It's what Mrs. Lovett is singing. Mm-hmm. It's how Because how she interacts with each different person. Um, Got her comeuppance, and that'll be thruppance. Uh, Toby, run for the gentleman. Like, that guy was trying to run without leave and must be one of them foreigners. Uh, or, no, we don't cut slices. It's just, yeah, she's talking to all these different people. What I love about God That's Good, and I love how we got into God That's Good while talking about Pirelli's Miracle Elixir, Sondheim wrote it with the idea in his head that Mrs. Lovett's going to multiple tables in a garden. Mm-hmm. And in his mind, it's like, I thought of it as a movie. I was like, oh, I have these images in my head of Mrs. Lovett, like all these quick cuts of the franticness of it all. And Prince is like, I don't know how to stage this with five different tables. It just like it's too much. It's too cluttered. It's all over the top. So Hal Prince was like, okay, it's going to be one big communal table that they're all at. 
which Sondheim wasn't the biggest fan of because he had this idea of, you know, Angela Lansbury running all over the place. Mm-hmm. Then he saw it. He's like, oh, it does work. But um, I would like, I think he would like to see a production at some point where there are like six different tables and Mrs. Lovett just constantly turning and turning and turning. In the same way that Prince told Patricia Birch for Night Music, The Glamorous Life, he was like, I want it to twirl, have it twirl the entire time. Patricia Birch is like, I don't think I ever got it to twirl. <laughs> um, I think Sondheim kind of wanted Mrs. Lovett to constantly be spinning. And I don't think she, in the original production she ever did. You saw hecticness, mm-hmm. but I think he always just kind of kind of wanted her to keep on turning and turning. Turning through the years. Now you see, you see, dearie, how he's been keeping Call the dances, Willie, tell me One for the gentleman here, the birdie's cheeping How does he keep it, dearie, tell me Now the other one about the Eric, my husband, asked me this question the other day. He said, do you think Pirelli, once he saw the Razors and recognized it was Sweeney Todd, do you think he threw the contest? Because in his grander scheme, he's like, I'm going to actually get money out of this dude, so I'll lose now just so I can blackmail him. What do you think? That's interesting. I think the way that Pirelli's written in the contest, it doesn't really go. Mm-hmm. because the way that the lyrics and the music are written, you can hear the intensity with which he's trying to do what he's doing. Like, he's really concentrating on it. Mm-hmm. Um, or I, I should say, with the tooth pulling, it is, seems very clear that he's much more in, intent on succeeding on winning, this time. Yeah. yeah. When you cut the tooth pulling sequence and you just have the shaving sequence and you see how much he's sort of stalling, you can make that argument, I think, for mm-hmm. sure. I don't know if that's necessarily Sondheim's intention, but I think you can totally uh, make that call. And in fact, when you see the movie, Sasha Baron Cohen, the moment he sees the razors, something happens on his face where it's like, oh, he recognizes this and recognizes Sweeney. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he loses, like, he's bitter, but he's not, like, pissed off. Um, yeah, so it makes sense that he would throw it. Um, I mean, on the other hand, you could say he could maybe not throw it, and he uh, intends on keeping on. Uh, getting some money out of it and then going to Sweeney anyway like the next day you know yeah I think losing the money just pisses him off even further totally what are your thoughts on um Beetle Bamford uh in what way um that character and that odd meter in Ladies and Their Sensitivities and that song in general and how it fits into Kiss Me um Beetle Bamford so I'm going to reference for a millionth time, and I know you haven't seen it yet, so I'm going to do my best not to spoil it for you. I'm going to reference Promising Young Woman. Okay. Where, which actually, the whole poor thing sequence is very similar to what happens to Carrie Mulligan's friend in Promising Young Woman, at least what they allude to anyway. But Beetle Bamford for me is just as monstrous because while he's not necessarily doing anything heinous during the show... He is an enabler, and the fact that he's able to move on with his life without a care in the world after this awful thing that he's done with the judge, and who's to say the numerous other awful things that he's enabled the judge to do, shows that he has absolutely no guilt, and he's not uh, tormented by it in any way. And his 
has been able to move on from his life as if it's nothing. And there are characters in Promising Young Woman where that's the same thing. Uh, two specific male characters who've actually been able to thrive after the fact of this horrifying incident. And which is sort of what makes Carrie Mulligan go even further into her depths of revenge. In fact, you can make a lot of parallels to Sweeney Todd and Promising Young Woman. That's my main pop culture reference for the episode, guys. Um, Yeah. As a character, I think it's a lot of fun for the actor to play and also provides his own form of comic relief. But when you think about it, he's just as monstrous as the judge. Um, And the movie definitely plays into that. There's a specific shot of Timothy Spall as the beetle during Poor Thing as the judge is raping Lucy. Wormtail. Wormtail, yes. Wormtail of Harry Potter. Uh, As well as other things. He's done other things, guy. Timothy Spall. But in Poor Thing in the movie... Uh, they luckily Tim Burton does not go into gruesome detail of of the judge raping Lucy. You see Alan Rickman lunge and fall on top of her, but after that, you never watch it. You just watch everyone's reactions, and it's heinous the way that it's shot. Like everyone's laughing in these grotesque, animalistic ways, and you then hear Lucy scream in the background, which then bleeds into Sweeney's scream, which Ali Gordon and I have bonded over because that's something we love that no production ever does of Lucy screaming going into uh, Sweeney screaming, like as a Oh, wow. No one ever does that, but the movie does. But you watch Timothy Spall take off his mask and watch at the very end. That's how the flashback of Poor's thing ends, is Timothy Spall taking off his mask as the Beatle and watching with, like, kind of awe and, like, arousal. Uh, And it's not an arousal, like, oh, yes, this is doing it for me, but, like, ah, this dude who I totally respect is, like, he's getting done. And to me... That highlights just like no matter what the beetle does in the future, he's that guy. He's the guy that did that and let that happen. Th- there's so a... so why do you ask? What's your thoughts on the beetle? Oh, I think it's interesting that 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 his melody. I, I was trying to look at ladies, mm-hmm. and I couldn't because I know there's a reason for it, but I, I couldn't I figure know. out why it's written in that time well, signature. Well, there's five eight. Wait, I don't even think about it on that scale because that's not i don't really know as much about that stuff as you do i can only think of the the ladies and their sensitivities has two major uh sections one is the excuse me my lord may i protest my lord and then it goes into the ladies and their sensitivities Mm -hmm. and first is the doting like uh um genuflecting moment of like the if i may if i may if i may Mm -hmm. then goes into the like languid area where he's it's all about very it's about being very suggestive. And in the dialogue before that, we are to imply that Beetle Banford is married with a child and his daughter loves him and, like, can't wait to see him and, like, she's going to be so happy that I'm home early from court. And, you know, later on in the show, we find out he's a music lover and he plays the organ. Um, so he's a very suggestive fellow. So I don't know what the time signatures are. And it's not really a motif of his because he doesn't show up a lot. But I think he thinks very highly of himself. And if he's maybe not as openly lecherous as the judge... I think he does have the same self-importance that the judge does. And you can hear that in that music of this sort of like, I'm not being crass right now, but I'm going to imply a lot to you. Uh, And then like in his own misogynistic way, talks about ladies and their sensitivities. Mm -hmm. It's like they're, you know, uh, when a girl's really feeling it, she's not going to tell you she's too sensitive for that. So you gotta, you gotta make it easier for her to like open up to you. It's just, it's very um, Will Smith and Hitch, where he's like, here's how you get a woman. It's like, you want to know how you get a woman? You say, hey, I like you. Do you like me back? No? Okay, I'm moving on now. If a woman doesn't like you, she fucking tells you right off the fucking bat. Mm-hmm. There's no, like, 
art of the seduction. What's interesting that his his voice type is also this high tenor, this yeah. counter tenor, you know, and he's also very effeminate in nature. Yeah, and even that reprise he sings of Sweeney Todd with well, Pirelli, like at I was, the end of the I was show. about to say, like, why do you think that he and Pirelli are both in that way? Well, um, I think they're both char- like over the top characters. Okay. Um, I think Beetle. I wonder if he because I've seen a production where the Beetle was. I think it was a college production, but the Beatle was played as having feelings for the judge, mm. and so they included the um, Joanna, the judge's Joanna, mm-hmm. and they had the Beatle also present, looking at the judge within himself. Okay. I don't know how you feel about that, but like I don't love that, but okay. I'm. I guess I'm just trying to make sense of Beatle's character and like why he would be a music lover, why he would sing so high, why he. Um, I mean. Th- What's interesting about the Beatle is that it, he kind of, he has all these things that I think they were trying to do with the judge by including that Joanna, which is like, you learn, oh, like, he's a music lover, he has a daughter, he has a sense of humor, he's very, um, he's slightly effeminate, but he also, like, has a lot of class about him and is, like, very restrained. You know, he's not... When you think of a monster, you think of someone like the judge. You think of somebody who is openly uh trying to molest his adopted daughter and abusing the law you don't think of someone like the beetle who in any other story would be the comedic relief and like lovable sidekick character he would be the sancho panza almost but because of everything that he's done in his relationship to the judge he is still a monster but he's not you know one note people Mm -hmm. and is that idea of and is what separates us from animals in the sense of like he can ha- he can be a part of all these monstrous things and still be a music lover. He can still be a countertenor. He can still be slightly effeminate. Like you, well Sweeney can still be a father and be a mass murderer. Yeah, and still love his daughter and exactly. be a mass murderer. Sweeney can have a reason for going insane and still do awful things while being insane. Also, I just thought of Benjamin Barker, mm-hmm. Beetle Bamford, BB BB. Is there a parallel? Who Pro- knows? Who knows? Was Christopher Bond just running out of options? Probably. Probably. I think he was just <laughs> drunk one night. He's like, oh, no. Bill Bamford. Benjamin Barker. It's, it feels good on the tongue, and I can write some good prose with it. <laughs> nice. Thank you. That's my that's my, Christopher Pro- my Christopher Bond impression. Well, in Pretty Woman, they reprise the— Pretty uh, Women. Pretty Women. Pretty Woman is a Julia Roberts vehicle that um, was brought on Broadway for a minute for some reason. Pretty Women's a different thing. Pretty Women, they reprise— the Beatles, ladies, and their sensitivities mm-hmm. with the bum 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 bum. bum. Yeah, because it's in the judge's head. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the, and I think he got criticized for that scene because because he waited mm-hmm. so long. He built that tension. Oh, Sondheim was criticized. Yes. Well, those are people being stupid. Um, I love the fact that you it subverts the audience. You think he's gonna kill him, and then it turns into this beautiful yeah. song. And again, and not to bring up the movie again for too long before talking about it later in the legacy <clears throat> and this again the benefit of film is and that's how and again it's because of how sondheim writes he thinks in film more than he really thinks in theater yes so it make so it adds to the tension when you watch the blade in close-up get to alan rickman's throat and then instead of being slit johnny depp swipes up <laughs> totally but when people say oh he waited why would he wait it's that's the whole reason why we have the fucking song wait, wait. He was told to wait. Yes, wait. Take your moment. Take a breath. Like, and and even says to the to the razors, like, revenge can't be taken in haste. You know, mm-hmm. you gotta. It's like, 
you you waited for this moment, wait a little longer so you can enjoy this. He plays with his food. And he does it again at the end of the show. He just does it far less. He, he still, like, sets the judge up in the chair, puts the thing on, puts the shaving cream on him. He, he still plays with his food a little bit, but he's like, I'm not going to play with it for three minutes. I'm going to play with it for 45 seconds. Yeah, you know? Pretty women, silhouetted, stay within you. Let's talk a little bit about Act Two because we're gonna we're gonna end with Priest. That's the last thing we're gonna talk about with this show is Priest. Amazing, perfect. Um, Joanna Act Two sequence. Sure. Um, there's not much I really feel the need to talk about with this song, only because for me that song has always been about the beggar woman. Oh, totally. Because it's, it's the only it's the only time she really gets like the stage, mm-hmm. uh, and it's her. She's talking about the smoke coming from uh, Mrs. Lovett's bakehouse. And singing like cities on fire, mm-hmm. um, but all these religious connotations too. Yeah, the devil, it's very the devil. It's very prophetic because hell. like yeah. even if the city is not technically on fire, it is in its own way. Mm-hmm. Like every we're all sort of living in hell right now. All of Sweeney's stuff is really because his his verse is like it's beautiful, but it's a little mundane and it's meant to be because it's mm-hmm. about sort of how he's going through the motions totally. and his mind is out of it. He's thinking about Joanna as more of this. Uh, separate entity that's like she's not even real anymore Mm -hmm. he's just sort of thinking about the idea of her while he's slitting the throats of his customers but there's no madness theme under his murders it's just beautiful the dichotomy of this beautiful song with just very simple orchestrations well he's almost like numb inside by this totally and that's sort of what it's all about and you see that later on because then we have by the sea where mrs lovett's like imagining this life for them and he's just sort of he's comatose he's Mm -hmm. a robot um, a machine, if um, you will. Yes, uh, he like a machine. He planned. Mm-hmm. Does a machine plan? Oh. In the industrial age, does a machine plan? Well, if you're personifying a thing, like or... a perfect machine, he planned. Hmm. I'm, I'm, is there another Deep thoughts? Is there another term for planned that I don't know? No, I mean, am I just stupid? I am, but am I? Well, he planned like. Oh, I guess so. I'm wondering. I also like it's like it's machine-y planned. Because it's E, like Cockney. Sure. Machine-y planned. I love that rhyme. Well, it's a lovely l- rhyme. I'm just saying, does a machine plan? No, a machine probably does not plan. If a machine <laughs> if a machine plans and nobody benefits from it, does it organize? I don't know. Uh, any other moments in this? Uh, oh, we have to talk about the big one. Not while I'm around. I love that song. Again, Barbara, the first person I ever heard that sing that song. So, this song is interesting because it's a beautiful song. Mm-hmm. And it's such a pure song mm-hmm. because it's Tobias, who's honestly perhaps the purest person in the show. He, because despite every, because whereas Anthony has had no hardships, being the, you know, pretty boy he is and whatnot, like, he has witnessed horrors in the world only now. And in his mind, he's like, I must save everyone from the horrors. Tobias has, like, had horrors put upon him, and yet he's still this little lovely innocent and, like, believes in good and has this woman, Mrs. Lovett, who he wants to protect and sings this pure, pure song to her. 
and Sondheim being Sondheim has to then make Lovett reprise it to Tobias in a uh and with this in a dissonant tone with his lone she realizes fight. she had to kill him now yep she's yep. gotta take yeah well first well first she's trying to uh steer him away from these thoughts about mm-hmm. Sweeney you know because it's it becomes clear that Tobias has thoughts about Sweeney not being all that great mm-hmm. just trying to steer him clear of it so when first we have Tobias who's singing you know nothing's gonna harm you this beautiful like little it's a little boy just wanted to protect this person and it's so sweet and then when she repeats it back to him it's it's odd and there's a violent sort of playing yes. against it and the what it is and what it's supposed to be is that um mrs lovett doesn't mean it like she's full of shit she's saying it to calm him down in hopes that he'll forget about sweeney what do you mean a man dear and when it becomes clear that he's not giving up on it, she's like, okay. And this is where different Lovett's interpreted differently. You have someone like Angela Lansbury, full-on sociopath, who's mm-hmm. like, well, guess we got to kill the kid. Yep. And then you have um, someone like Helena Bonham Carter or even when I saw Sally and Triplett do it. Like, you could tell that it was breaking their heart because mm-hmm. here's somebody who, like, loves me and it's so wonderful and I care for this thing. Thing. Um, totally. And yeah, it's it, there was there was true emotion there with them. Whereas, what a sweet affectionate child it, it is. It, it, yeah. it is. Demons will charm you with a smile. He gets everything wrong. Like, he thinks he's actually selling hair elixir. Mm-hmm. He thinks he's selling meat pies. Mm-hmm. He thinks that he has to take care of Mrs. Lovett. He thinks that Sweeney's the one who's the mastermind. Mm-hmm. Who's manipulating her, yeah. Yes. So everything is turned on his head. Yeah. Um. He just, he, his intentions are so right and, and so noble. He just, he keeps on putting his eggs in the wrong basket. Mm-hmm. What it is is, like, it's that moment in Get Out where Daniel Kal- Kaluuya is um, trying to he's like al- telling Allison Williams like Rose get the keys get the keys not realizing like that she's totally in on it mm-hmm. and it's very it's basically Tobias like telling Mrs. Lovett like get the keys like get the keys let's go totally. not knowing that like she has the keys she's not throwing them out like no bitch she's gonna put you in the second place yep ah uh, that so, movie's amazing by the way no argument here yeah great incredible movie. great movie what would Jordan Peele do with Sweeney Todd I'd like to see that shit I would love to see that mm-hmm you know, okay. Speaking of Dreamcast, I wouldn't have thought this before Get Out, but twenty years from now, I like to see Allison Williams as Mrs. Lovett. I think she could do it. Ooh. After I'm sorry, after that movie with the phone call where she's blank faced, but she's going the Oh God, where is he? But her face is totally stone mm-hmm. cold. I'm like, that bitch could be Lovett in twenty years. She could do Let's it. Let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. Make and it she happen. sings. She sings so well. She'll do it. Oh, that's right. She played Peter Pan, right? Yep. She did play Peter Pan, and she sings on Girls. <laughs> We don't have to go talk about girls. girls. But yes, she'll star in our production of Sweeney at the Winter Garden Theater in 20 years. Hey, oh, that's right. That's going to happen. Okay. All right, moving on. So let's talk about the finale for a quick second. And by finale, I mean like the final sequence. Okay, Because we great. talked about it a little bit with, with all with the reprises and whatnot. But like I really want to go into it for a second. Literally this 
this these final 10 minutes, which also apparently weren't written, as I said earlier, they weren't written when they went into rehearsal, mm-hmm. but all the motifs come back. Everything. The da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. There was a bar, and then Barbara and his wife, mm-hmm. um, Joanna by the, by the sea, sea. Little priest. Little priest, poor thing. Um, I love that um, they go back into Little Priest right before he kills her because it's his way of let of softening her letting her guard down so he can have her right at the right moment to throw her into the oven which is if that's not night a soldier falling on his sword i don't know what is mrs lovett being killed by her own oven Mm -hmm. so poetic when you think of the imagery of mrs lovett like if you want any more justification that she's herself a demon think of sweeney kills the people lovett's the one who like gets the meat out of them grinds them up Mm -hmm. she makes all the pies herself and like Tobias even says, like, oh, I, uh, it's so it breaks my heart to like think of you alone down here. Like, what it takes to strip these people of the the meat off their bones and then turn them into meat pies, she does it every day. Yep. Also, the original concept, her wig has those two devil horns coming out of them, mm-hmm. and the red. Yep. Her red blazing right. devilish hair. Again, there's so much religious connotation. Yeah. To everything, which we'll get to in priest, of course. Um, I love that. Ba-ba! realization mm-hmm. before when he finds out it's lucy mm-hmm. and again papa is the same like motif alms alms yeah. it's a bit of a stretch but you the know the only thing that's not really used in anywhere else in the score and it's the only kind of um bernard herman that i think a basic bitch would know because it's very psycho is when sweeney finally does kill the judge which has a very like ring 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 mm-hmm. ring kind of sound to it because that's not really used anywhere in the show as far as i'm aware I think it comes once earlier. Oh, is it maybe the oh, music in Epiphany? In, yeah, when it's like uh, easy but not for now. Long. Well, and, and 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 the like uh, the but not for a long bum 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 bum. It, maybe it's like that kind of thing. There were just like the one chord over and over again, which is also Miss Lovett's intro. Did that bum 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 bum. Oh, totally. Yeah. So because it's just the Ray is in that too. Because it's also just um ba 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 ba. Um, I don't know. I it does. It just sounds the way that it is arranged and where it comes. It doesn't sound like anything else in the score. So it just sort of feels like this final cathartic like release. Mm-hmm. In a way, that's the orgasm that Sondheim wanted for Judges Joanna. When you think about it, it's its own little release. And sure enough, in the movie, that blood shoots its wad all over the place. That blood. So a little priest. Do you want to talk about the ballads first or priest? The ballads. No, we're talking about the ballads with the legacy. As I because I want to go that's into it right. with the movie. Yes. Oh gosh, let's let's talk about priest because I have most of my notes on priest. Fantastic. So, a little priest is the song that comes out of two lines of dialogue where Mrs. Lovett realizes what she can do with the bodies that Sweeney is going to kill. Uh, you know how she can dispose of them while also giving herself some quality meat for her pies. <laughs> And Sweeney is so on board with the idea, and then the whole song just becomes... A lisp song. A lisp song, a banter song, that has its own sort of sexual energy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it has this great dark turn at the end that's like both triumphant and also really unsettling. There's a lot of religious connotation. Like, they mention um, bishop, curate, vicar, friar, mm-hmm. but priest is the first one, and it's the title of the song. Mm-hmm. Um, he's playing God. Mm-hmm. He he's finally taking his um his place mm-hmm. that his his uh his duty now is to serve these people. My favorite part. Well, I have all these favorite parts. 
he says the history of the world, the way it used to be, was those below serving those up above, which could mean the poor has always served the rich, the wicked who live in hell below mm-hmm. always serve the good, people living in heaven or on earth, right? But now, how fortunate we are to know that those the above, above will, will serve those, those down below, below, which means, A, Sweeney Todd is literally above the pie shop doing mm-hmm. all the killing, and he's literally serving the people who are now in hell. If everybody who dies goes to hell, mm-hmm. then those people, he's serving their meat to the, pe- to the people above. Um, he's God also above with everyone down below him. Yep. He's, it works in a lot of ways because you have literally he's above the pie shop and they create the shoot from his chair to the bake shop. And uh, he is literally serving the dead bodies down to the pie shop. So he is serving the people in the, in the pie shop. He is serving bodies to hell. He's bringing souls down to hell. Yes. And then on top of that, you have the class structure where, because he has a lot of uh, wealthy clients as well, the wealthy will now finally serve the downtrodden. Everyone else. Yep. Absolutely. Because, uh, fortunately, it's also clear, everybody goes down well with me. The whole title comes from they are so into the idea and then they start play acting and they have fun with all the possibilities that this new menu will provide. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Lovett shows a pie and says, what is that? And the same way that we go, oh, it's a curry flavored. It's, it's red velvet or like, like with a cake, it's red velvet, it's carrot cake, it's chocolate cake. A priest, have a little priest. Sir, it's too good, at least. Then again, they don't commit sins of the flesh. So it's pretty fresh. And then it just goes on from there. And the and it becomes one-upping each other of how they can play with the food. And this is I bring this song up because I think I talked about it with Do I Hear a Waltz. For the longest time, Sondheim has had trouble writing jokes in his songs. I think that Forum is not necessarily a funny score, and Sondheim would agree with me on that. I think Night Music weirdly is his first show where he has like true punchlines, like good, hearty, like jokes. Uh-huh. Priest doesn't necessarily have punchlines in the lyrics, but it's more about how clever the lyrics are. Because once once the idea of the song is established, that we are presenting pies flavors as people or sorry, sorry we are we are presenting human beings and their occupations as pie flavors and how we discuss food is how we're about to discuss these human beings mm-hmm. the fun that sondheim has with the wit of that becomes its own punchline becomes their own joke so while they're not necessarily on their own a joke the intelligence and the sheer like audacity that he has with these lyrics is enough to be funny you know Totally. Yeah. And I love how priest is the keystone because mm-hmm. he says, is it really good? Again, that duality of yeah. good and evil. Yeah. And it's too good. It's too good at yeah. least. And then I, but it keeps coming back to that because every time that they're offering up flavors, she keeps saying like, stick to priest, uh-huh. which my dad quotes all the time. Every time Sweeney Todd comes up, 
he always says, stick to Priest. He loved that finale. And he, that was when he saw the John Doyle production. He had no idea what was going on. Oh, wow. Because he never saw the show before. Um, there, the, You can also... it Before the song can go on for too long, there are already hints of um, the plot coming back into it when uh, they're going on about flavors. And Sondheim, uh, Sondheim, and Sweeney says, like, have you any beetle? And he says it with kind of a menace. Malice, yeah. And Lovett kind of placates him. She goes, next week, so I'm told. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and then makes even a joke about it. Um, it's not bad till you smell it and noticed how well it's been greased. greased meaning, like, you know, paid off. And then says, stick to priest. And then, uh, after all of these things, after all of this wordplay, Sweeney's, like, kind of done. And he's like, I'll come again when you have judge on the menu. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes Love It sort of bring him back. She goes, wait. And she does the whole executioner bit. And it's so gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's favorite favorite moments in this song. Moments that you just, like, come back to all the time for you. The end of the song, the, the, the triumph in, in the in the chord, it sounds like they're achieving something great. And they mm-hmm. are in their devilish way. Mm-hmm. Um just the way the whole thing builds. I love the fact that it's a drinking song. Mm-hmm. Um, my mind is blown every time I just I listen to it. I get chills every time I listen to that. And that's mm-hmm. so silly, but I've been studying this thing for a week. I've known this thing for years, and I, I cannot get enough of it. Yeah. There's so much amazingness in there. Have charity towards the world, my pet. Yes, yes, I know, my love. We'll take the customers that we can get. High for so Sweeney Todd opens on Broadway, March 1st, 1979. Reviews are mostly pretty ecstatic. Uh, it's in the way that like Sondheim reviews tend to be. Very few reviews are like this show is amazing and perfect even the reviews that are like this show is amazing they're like there are still things wrong with it mm-hmm. uh, as i said one of the one of the things that a lot of reviewers had as one was in the new york times was like the final final ending the epilogue they're like feels tacked on like to give a message to the show i'm like the show doesn't really have a message you have someone like walter kerr's like it's well made but why uh which was sort of the same thing that was said of Pal Joey when that opened. All the critics were like, I mean, you did a good job, but why would you make this a musical? This is such such unpleasant material. And uh, was it uh, Richard? Uh, Clive Barnes in the post is like really the only one who's like, the whole thing is just fantastic. What I love is that Clive Barnes in Sondheim's career, he and Hal Prince have always been like, oh, Clive Barnes, that like dick who was like always oh, a thorn in our side. He didn't like Follies, didn't like Company. He didn't like Pacific Overtures. And I'm like, he actually liked Pacific Overtures more than most of the critics. He didn't love it, but he's like, there's a lot worthwhile here. But yeah, a lot of these other critics, like, it's all, you know, it's staggering. It's uh, it's unusual, but it's great. But also, like, it's uh, doesn't really lure you in. It doesn't make you feel anything. And like, oh, it's exceptional, but not all the pieces fit. Like, no one is really willing to say, point blank, this is amazing. Um the community does the theatrical community all collectively agrees like this is the pinnacle of the sondheim prince collaboration Collaboration, yeah and it shows 
with the Tony Awards this year because it wins musical, it wins score, it wins eight Tony Awards in general. And if you watch the 1979 Tony Awards telecast, it's really funny because score and book are presented right before Best Musical and Barry Boswick is the one presenting musical. And like Sondheim's just won and Hugh Willard's just won and Boswick goes like, and now the nominees for Best Musical and everyone just laughs because they're like, we all know it, Sweeney. <laughs> Did it lose anything? They lost costumes, I believe, okay. but that's it. They weren't nominated for featured actor or actress. Uh, um, Merle Louise and um, what's his face? The original Ken Jennings. Yeah, Ken Jennings. They were not nominated, even though they had won the Drama Desk and Drama Critic Circle for uh, their roles. So they weren't nominated for the Tonys, which is super unfortunate. I don't know if they would have won though, because they lost to the true leads of best little whorehouse that year but yeah i think costumes are the only thing that sweeney lost okay uh and they're amazing they're wonderful costumes <laughs> i don't remember what they lost to or maybe it was light they either lost costumes or they lost lighting they lost one and i don't remember what show they lost to but do you know the other three musicals that sweeney was up against for musical and then for score because they were they're uh separate Oh gosh, seventy nine. Mm-hmm. That wasn't Evita, was it? No, that was eight. Evita's the following year. Um, Evita opens in September of seventy nine. I have no clue. So musical, it's up against Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Ballroom, and they're playing our song. Of these three, Whorehouse is the only one that's like, you know, still a thing really. Ballroom is the big Michael Bennett flop, and starring Dorothy Loudon. Yes, indeed. Who eventually took over Mrs. Lovett. Yes. And Whorehouse is also the biggest hit of this year. It runs for four years, whereas Sweeney only runs for a little over a year and loses a lot of its money. It, Sweeney apparently made its entire investment back like 20 years later due to <laughs> selling the movie rights, uh, record sales, and then like regional and school productions all over the world. So like eventually made its money back, but it took a long time. Uh, score, it's up against UB, which is a musical featuring the music of Yubi Blake. So, you know. Okay. Weird. <laughs> Carmelina, which is a musical version of uh, Goodbye uh, uh, Goodbye, Mrs. Campbell, or Hello, Mrs. Campbell, Buena Sara, Mrs. Campbell, which is a m- si- uh, movie from the 60s, I think, which is essentially the plot of Mamma Mia. And it was, uh, the Carmelina, the score I know, was written by Alan J. Lerner. Nothing came of it. And then the final one is Jerry Herman's Grand Tour. So what pisses me off is that Best Little Whorehouse in Texas is not nominated for score this season. And that's, oh, wow. that score should have been nominated. But, yeah, there was no competition. Sweeney was blowing all Swept. of these guys yeah. out of the water. They do a tour, which uh, closes in Los Angeles with Angela Lansbury, George no, Hearn. Was the tour with June Havoc, was that the first tour or the second tour? Second tour. Okay. First tour is Angela Lansbury and George Hearn. And they do the, I think they do the whole thing, and they close out in Los Angeles where they film it. June okay. Havoc does the second tour, which is, I think, much more scaled down. Opens in London at the Drury Lane, where it wins the Olivier, but it plays for less than six months, which really bummed Sondheim out. Because he's like, I wrote this as a love letter to London. And they, like, it was well-received, but nobody saw it. Uh, But interestingly enough, I think Sweeney Todd has actually had a much richer legacy in London than it's had here. It's done all the time here, Mm -hmm. but it's done even more frequently there. Like, for a show that kind of bombed, it's immediately revived like five years later in London in a small like off West End theater. It's then done at the National in 93. So like 11 years or 12 years after it's done on uh, at the Drury Lane, it's done again at the National. And then it's done again 10 years later. And then it's done again 10 years later after that. 
famously John Doyle does a stripped down version of it which comes to America in 05 and that's the second revival there's a the teeny Todd in 1990 which was very uh I don't say controversial but like it was big news that Sweeney Todd was being done on such a small intimate scale because but that's what he wanted originally. Yeah, but until then, for the, all of the 80s, it was done in opera houses. It was known for mm-hmm. its big production on Broadway. And everyone's like, can Sweeney Todd work in a small-scale production? And there was like, I guess it can. And since then, it's like been done all over the place in various styles. Yeah. But it's done in New York ever since then on a much smaller scale. We have two major concert productions, George Hearn and Patti Lapone, Emma Thompson and uh, Bryn Terfel, which I saw. Um, and then it's done again in the pie shop. You did not. You said you only saw the little bit of the bootleg of the Doyle production. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I love what I saw. Actually, yeah. it was. That it was one's great. really. That's one I recommend to Sweeney fans, once they like are familiarized with the show and know the show and like the show. So just so you can hear how it can sound with a different orchestration, how you can watch it done in a more um, avant-garde style. I would not necessarily make that someone's introduction to Sweeney. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, so I, I actually talked to my friend John Arbo who played uh, Jonas Fogg in mm-hmm. that production. Oh, yes. And he actually didn't – he was primarily a bass player, but he also has a background in singing. Mm-hmm. And when he got hired to do that, he had never known Sweeney Todd mm. before. Interesting. Yeah, so he learned it through that. Uh, Fogg, who owns the asylum, actually has one of my favorite lines in the show because when Anthony goes to kidnap Joanna, get her out of the insane asylum, which I also love, <laughs> Sweeney like spends his whole evening – training anthony to like be a credible wig maker and like know all the different kinds of shades of hair only for like none of that to end up being useful like (laughs) basically he shows up joanna gives up the game immediately and anthony brings out a pistol and it's like oh well there goes all that that." one over there yeah Yeah. exactly and like fog doesn't end up caring what shade he wants he's like which one do you want he's like oh that one he's like okay right um but when anthony brings out the pistol he goes stop or i shall shoot and fog goes shoot and i shall stop like I love the movie, by the way, that part in the movie. Oh, when he goes to the insane asylum? Yes. Oh, it's great. It's wonderful. I do miss the fact that Joanna's the one that shoots Mr. Fogg. Yeah, totally. I love that. It gives her some agency. But it's also kind of really fitting that Fogg then gets devoured by his own inmates, which kind of keeps mm-hmm. into – in the movie where it kind of keeps into uh, the theme of Sweeney Todd in general, of everyone devou- – of man devouring man. Uh, yeah. Of the productions of Sweeney Todd you have seen, mm-hmm. do you have a per- particular favorite? I would say, now that I've seen, and I haven't seen the whole thing, parts of the bootleg of the original Broadway cast. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it wasn't the original. I think Betsy Jocelyn and Chris Gronendahl were in it. understudies at the time, but yeah. they were on for Join and Anthony. But that production like, captures it brilliantly. It's great. Um, of the ones I've seen live, oh, the pie production, the pie shop and Barrel Street production is my particular favorite. And that's the only professional production I've ever seen. So when I, I say professional, it. I'm just li- – because I've seen that. I saw John Doyle. I saw it in concert with Emma Thompson. I saw – I've seen a couple of, like, regional and amateur productions. Mm-hmm. The one at Barrow Street, for me, is the closest I've ever gotten to being, like, like – in it like in the thriller of it in the intensity of it all while still like getting the story across Mm -hmm. and i because i've always wanted to do sweeney todd set in a pub and the pie shop is essentially the closest that we get to that where it's like this idea of everyone sort of sitting at tables around and the whole thing starting 
with people in a pub like singing attend the tale of sweeney todd which now we're getting into the choruses of this because the movie doesn't include any of the choruses what a shame well so here's my tea originally they were going to do it they had the the story goes they had a screenplay and i've read the screenplay where it's like it's the ghosts of sweeney's victims are singing the ballad and then singing all the reprises and then i don't even think they sing the they no, they do sing the epilogue and it's supposed to end with Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett singing the end of the epilogue sort of at each other. And then it closes out. Mm-hmm. I don't – then, accordingly, John, uh, Johnny Depp's daughter got sick and had to take a couple of days off of filming to take care of her, delayed production. And rather than, like, push the whole thing back, Tim Burton's like, well, no, let's stay on schedule and we're just going to cut the ballads so we, you know, can still shoot the rest of the movie. We just – we now – can make up those eight days by cutting all the all the bells and everybody's like i dislike that here's what i think i think you can absolutely do the opening and the epilogue in a movie i don't think you can make any of those other reprises work in a film because they're so very much a theatrical device they stop the action completely and they work in the show because it's a greek chorus sort of reminding us that this Mm -hmm. is a tale we're being told but it stops the action in its tracks, and we accept it in the show because we are allowed the time on stage, right? We're allowed breathing room. We're allowed to um, accept certain things as not being reality of breaking the fourth wall. In a movie, you really can't have that. You have to keep it going. You have to stay in the world. Yes. He says that um, Sweeney Todd, Sondheim mm-hmm. is he, says that Sweeney Todd is, is a um, movie for the stage. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it has to be a cinematic theater piece it, i don't think it can be a theatrical film yeah and i've said before you need to really embrace the theatricality of a musical when you're making it into a movie like create this world where singing makes sense which is another thing chicago that think, yeah and sh- well chicago what they do is they have all the songs take place in her head so you are you're like oh of course they're singing it's a fantasy where sweeney todd Tim Burton creates a world that makes sense that people would sing Mm because it's not a realistic London. It's an impressionistic London. Mm -hmm. So many of the shots look like a Renoir painting sometimes, like when it's nighttime and um, not even – no, not Renoir. It looks like a Rembrandt painting. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, like the darkness and the light um, just, you know, looks like an oil painting sometimes. And you're like, this feels like a world that people would sing. It makes sense. Now, as I said, it's not a good representation of the stage show, but then again, neither is Oliver. Oliver is a bad representation of the stage show because Oliver is a wonderful movie of a mediocre show where they cut songs, they move songs around, they change some plot points. And if you were to watch a stage show of Oliver after seeing the movie, you'd be like, what? This didn't happen. That's not what this is. And Sweeney Todd is a very similar thing. I think the difference is that Sweeney Todd is a much better musical than Oliver and people, therefore, are more protective of it. But I'm willing to allow this, the movie to exist because we already have two recordings of the stage show sure. in its entirety. The thing is, I love Burton. Mm-hmm. I love his aesthetic. Um, but I think the first line of Sweeney Todd, you're, they're breaking the fourth wall. They're saying, attend the tale. They mm-hmm. are acknowledging the fact that we are going to let you into this fable. And that device needs to start and end the show. Mm-hmm. That Greek chorus. Um, to immerse us in the theatricality of the story especially with that language attend the tale they're not saying like come on in friends and like no it's it's a it's a ghost story it's 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 a it's a bloody mary kind of situation Mm -hmm. which is why if i were to make a movie version of it myself i would have attend the tale be told in a pub in a darkly lit pub where it's like 15 people Mm -hmm. on a stormy night in like downtown london uh lit by candlelight 
and it's you know they're beginning to tell the story and that goes into the movie and then i i remember when the movie came out i wrote because i just like wanted to put it out into the universe i wrote my own like version of the epilogue which was um the epilogue was uh over the course of them carting tobias off to the madhouse so what i wrote was tobias is like in a room with a bunch of inmates and it's during the like sweeney wishes the world away and it's the sweeney sweeney and everyone getting around them and then they clear away and tobias is faced with who he thinks is mrs lovett an inmate that he projects as mrs lovett and she sings a ten the tale and then as he looks off at the door as the attendants are leaving he sees sweeney behind them and sweeney closes the door on tobias oh cool yeah i think we need that book end that i thought the movie ended so abruptly and like that was the one part that i i thought was almost unforgivable it will it ends in a on a on a softer more pathetic note which is sweeney cradling his wife spilling out blood sure. in the bakehouse but the which, thesis is gone though because basically the thesis is to seek revenge mainly to hell but everyone does it is that sweeney there beside you they're pointing well, like it could be you or you or you or you what it does what know? it does is it takes out the grandeur of the metaphor and just keeps it on a human scale and you can still take away a lot of that without it being blatant. I think it could be done. Basically, the way I view it is, I think Tim Burton did a phenomenal version of Sweeney Todd as a movie. One that of like four or five that you could make. I think Sweeney Todd mm-hmm. could make four or five different movies, and Tim Burton just made one of them. It's unfortunately one that a lot of people are not happy with because it's not as faithful and it's not the Sweeney people see in their heads. Mm-hmm. It's a much more... Um, uh, stylized take that said Sondheim loves the movie he loves everything that was oh, I didn't know that oh he loves it uh, there's a story where the movie was done and it was about to be released and he was having people over at a party and was show- and it was like as a treat like showed them the movie with all this givingness and then was giving side commentary about how much he loved Helena Bonham Carter's performance and he was like see that thing she did there see that see that she's <laughs> really good I will say. I think she's phenomenal. And she is the only love that I have seen where you can see her decide she's going to lie to Sweeney to his face after Poor Thing about Lucy. And you watch her go through that process. After she's done Poor Thing, and he says, where's my wife? Where's Lucy? And she looks at him, and her eyes open up, and she goes, she poisoned herself. And you can watch her go, am I going to finish that sentence? No, I'm not. And she looks away, apothecary from around the corner, looks down i tried to stop her and mm-hmm. then she looks back mm-hmm. up but she wouldn't listen to me and it's in that moment it's her going am i gonna finish this finish the sentence no i'm going further down the lie i'm not telling him i'm gonna commit to it look back up and it's not like she's not playing it so obvious it's something that i like realized i think on my fourth viewing i was like oh my god i see the thought process she's mm-hmm. having right now it's wonderful uh she's not the funniest love it Hers is much more heartfelt love it, which I really like. You see... But for a movie, that's appropriate. Absolutely. And you see for her how much, like, her love for him and wanting to be loved drives everything that she does. She is still a totally. little... She's still a little demented. And she is still funny. Her Worst Pies in London is still very funny. It is funny. I don't even care the fact that it's not necessarily sung mm-hmm. the best. Well, it's... Or with the gravitas that yeah. that role needs. But she's wonderful. She is. I, it's not the most... It's not the grandest of singing. Everything is done on a more intimate scale. It's truly like whisper singing before Les Mis ever did it. But mm-hmm. I think it works for Sweeney because 
with Sweeney, all the times that there's whisper singing, it's done on a very intimate scale. It's mm-hmm. not like One Day More, where Tom Hooper has everybody going, one more day all on my own. And it's like 30 people whispering Ooh, together. I don't want to talk about that movie. <laughs> We're not talking about it today. We're running out of time. Uh, you know, all the times where it's done on a whisper, it makes sense. You know, it's people indoors at, at a very small scale. There's much more grand singing done on, you know, Little Priest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish that he had kept the chorus for God That's Good, just, and I wish he had kept City on Fire just because, like, yeah. I can see it in my head, you know, the the mug slamming on the table on the more hot pies, and I can see Mrs. Lovett running around and all that stuff. As it is, it's just an establishment song in the movie of, like, the, the shop is doing well. Mm-hmm. As I, like, do I think the movie is perfect? No. There are some things I would like to change, like adding that, adding Sitting on Fire. There's so much about the movie that I love, and because it's such a different interpretation, I really appreciate that because I think the more interpretations we have of Sweeney and the less we kind of approach it from a performance perspective of, like, on high, God on high. Sure. We can analyze it the way we are because it's so amazing. But, like, when we're doing the show, when we're watching the show, we can't sit there and just go, like, how will you interpret the Bible? Like, it's right. – like, it's still a fucking thriller. Apparently, it was marketed very deceptively. The movie was? Yes. Oh, yeah. The they... trailer had no singing. No so people singing. went to go see it, and they were like, what the hell is this? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That was at the time when movie studios were trying to hide the fact that things were musicals. They were like, how long can we trick people into not realizing it's a musical? And now we're much more open about it. I think if they had – because, like, I think there was such a potential to be like, this is going to be the mu- – this is going to – for you horror fans, this is the musical that's going to get you. And for you musical fans, this is the horror movie that's going to get you. Because they really embrace the blood in it, which I love. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the movie is pretty divisive in the community. It has now become a well-regarded movie in the film community, weirdly yes. enough. It As is the, part of the canon of Tim Burton, yes. Yeah, it is the most well-reviewed Tim Burton movie of all time. It has the highest, really? has the highest Metacritic score with like 83 or something like that, which is like in the universal acclaim category. It's an Oscar winner. It won for art direction and Depp was nominated. It won the Golden Globe for musical comedy film, and Depp won as well, which doesn't say much. The Golden Globes are a weird situation. Mm -hmm. But, like, as far as I'm aware, the film community thinks this is a very good movie and is considered one of Burton's best. And a lot of people – it ended up doing what it should have done the first time around, which was being the movie musical that musical haters like. Because uh-huh. it is so um, dark and twisted and, and you know, it's just so well-crafted. Movie musical haters like that movie. They're like, this is the musical that, I, that I'll watch. I wouldn't show this movie to introduce somebody to Sweeney Todd, though. No. No, 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 not at all. The, no, this is the movie I show people who are like, musicals really aren't for me. I will show them this movie. Because it's a good entryway into musicals. And then if they like it, I'm like, great, we're going to see a stage production sometime and you're really going to like it. Um, so Justin, final thoughts on Sweeney Todd. I actually think it's his magnum opus. And I, I then now feel bad saying that, like, I feel like I'm speaking against Into the Woods and Night Music, but it's my favorite of his musicals, hands down. The complexity and the uh, emotion that I get while watching that and, and the, the musicianship and the poetry on paper um, the performances have come out of that. Um, the set design, the costumes—I um, think it's perfect. Unclear if it's still my—if it's my still 
Unclear if it's my favorite. I'm still figuring that out as I am going through all of the canon right now. Some shows that I thought I wasn't going to like as much revisiting, I've come to like more. Mm-hmm. Some shows that I thought were my favorites are kind of lowering in standards for me. Like? I'll let you know in the final episode when I go through the whole canon and list them uh, as my favorites from uh, least favorite to most favorite. God bless. Because I'm not going to do objective what I think is best. You know? I'm also too emotionally connected to it. Like, I cannot be biased. So I feel like what I say doesn't even matter because what it elicits in me, it makes me want to kill people and eat them in meat pies, you know? No. So would you say that you have a <laughs> to bias for this show? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm giving you a look now. <laughs> so, okay. Rapid fire questions. <clears throat> oh, no. This on time rhyme. What is your favorite lyric in this show? Um... Sweeney pondered and Sweeney planned like a perfect machine he planned. But does a machine plan? <laughs> well, you ruined it. I know I didn't ruin it. I was bringing it back full circle. How dare you? <laughs> I was making it funnier. There are too many. But Just pick one. Just pick a good one. That, first one that pops into your head. Go. The thesis. To seek revenge may lead to hell, but everyone does it and seldom as well. Or is it if seldom as well? Well, he's changed it since then. Uh... To was it? Um, to seek revenge is such a thrill, you don't even notice you lose what you kill. I thought that was the original that he changed it, to I what it is now. I I don't know. It's unclear in finishing the hat because he has the one and then he says I changed it. Maybe he changed it to seek revenge may lead to hell. He also changed um, we'll serve anyone, meaning anyone, one and two anyway. He said he he changed it because he never liked the meaning anyone because he he did it because he had to repeat it musically and he never liked that he said meaning anyone because he's felt that it made no sense and so in the movie he changed it so that sweeney says we'll serve anyone and then lovett sings we'll serve anyone and then they both sing and to anyone at all yeah repetition yep and now he's like that's the change that goes in the show and that's how it's done forever now Mm -hmm. which i do like that sometimes he's like this has always bothered me and i've 30 years later i figured out how to change it in like the tiniest of ways so here you go Mm -hmm. it's when he does like full-blown like restructuring i'm like you leave it alone steve um next question I had a dream cast. Who would you like to see in this? So up until a few days ago, I said, I want Anthony Warlow to play it, even though he's technically not a bass baritone. He's more of a high baritone mm-hmm. with a tenor notes. Um, but he played it already. Where did he play it? He, um, it's on YouTube. Some Australian production. Okay. But he sings My Friends. I think he can do no wrong mm-hmm. vocally. But they raised it. And I was like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, they apparently raised, for Beth Fowler and Bob Gunn, they, they raised a little priest half a step up. No way. Um, yeah, which, I mean, because she's, like, Beth Fowler is just, like, one of those most, one of the most underrated voices in musical theater, just, like, beltus, beltress for the gods. So, of course, she was like, let's go, go up half a step. I can belt half this shit. I have to hear that. Um, I think, honestly, everybody who's played it is, there's such amazing things about it. I would combine all their, mm. all their attribute or positive attributes into one um if i were to choose somebody who's maybe never played it who i'd want to see um mm. beth malone as mrs lovett beth malone interesting i think she'd be brilliant i think she's an amazing actress has mark kudish ever done sweeney Ooh, i don't know he'd sound amazing his he might be a little pingy because he's he is a baritone but he might be a little pingy for it but i, I don't know i like to see it i also think he's such a phenomenal actor i like to see his take on it mm-hmm. um has Shuler hensley ever done it oh wow i don't know That'd be a good one. I don't know where his voice is at these days, but um, his, I mean, his Judd is still, like, absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, I'm, I'm down for that. Next up, and I think we know the answer to this. God, that's good. Where does this show rank for you in the Sondheim canon? Number one. That's it. Number one. That's it, baby. Final question. Because Sondheim tends to come back in stripped-down productions these days, because that's all we can afford to produce them for, this section is called It's the Little Things, a.k.a. There Won't Be Trumpets, because trumpets are too expensive. How would you downsize this show? Knowing, by the way, that it's been downsized twice off, three times, <laughs> totally. very famously. Beautifully, both times. Well, um, three, three times, because we have Teeny Todd, we have oh, John right. Doyle, and then we have uh, Barrow Street. Three times. I think... I'll, I'll knock three times. Oh, goodness. Three times. I think it's so good that literally I would be okay with a group of 30 people coming into my living room, if they would fit singing the score around the piano, sitting on chairs or kneeling around the piano, and if mm -hmm. they execute it brilliantly, there you have it. I mean, I again, we said earlier that this show can be messed up. Mm -hmm. um, but again, if you just do the show purely, mm -hmm. sing it the way it was written with the intention, it's perfect. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I want to see another production that, that could... Well I think, buy it. So I think the answer we have here is that we could strip it down. It's been done already, so I think to really defy convention, we're going to go big again. 20 years, starring Miss Allison Williams. <laughs> and we're going to do at it the at the Winter Garden. At the Winter Garden, absolutely. And at, Well, by 20 years from now, Mark Kudish is going to be our judge. He's not going to be our Sweeney, but he'll be a good judge, too. And Sidney Lucas will be our Joanna. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, Justin, this has been a thrill. This has been amazing. They keep letting me ramble. Oh, my God. I'm going to have the hardest time editing this shit. Um, so first question for you is, you and social media is a complex answer. Oh, yes. So normally I ask people, where can people find you on social media? Well, I was not on social media up until three weeks ago. Yes, that is true. And technically speaking, you still really aren't because it's not you. It's, it's not, not you like sharing your life in your avocado toast. But you are on social media. Yes. So if people would like to find you, here's your caveat of what they will find if they find you. My uh, Instagram handle is Eric and Justin Adopt, um, because my husband Eric and I are on the uh, journey towards adoption. We're home studied, which means we've had our background check, and now we're uh, doing the outreach part, uh, where we're looking for a ex an expected mom, mm -hmm. uh, like a birth mom. Uh, so the journey could be short, could be long, but we're just kind of setting up our social media to get the word out. And uh, we have a website, ericandjustinadopt.com. Um, it doesn't really say much about us other than that we'll be hopefully wonderful dads for someone's child. And you will. Listen, I can say this as someone who's the most judgmental, judgy, judgerson of all time. Their home is like my dream home. They have all the things that I want. All the They style it in the way that I want. They're lovely people. Uh, and if you're concerned that I'll be around too much, just so you know, this is the last time Justin has agreed to speak to me. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about the baby being influenced by me and my foul-ass mouth. Don't worry. I am not going to be around if that's what it takes. They will, they will shun me as soon as you say baby. God bless America. <laughs> God bless America. Um, you can find me on Instagram, at Matt Koplik, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, give us a nice five-star rating uh, or give us a nice little review if you'd like. Or just subscribe. Tell your friends. Uh, we're trying to break out from being just boutique and becoming more of a mini chain. You know? Get a, get the word out. 
Join us next week as we delve into the show that breaks up the Hal Prince-Steven Sondheim relationship, which is one merrily we roll along. Almost makes Sondheim quit the business completely. How do we close this out? Who do we close out with? Uh, because so many people connected to Sweeney, we have done. We've done Angela. We've done Beth Fowler. Dorothy Loudon? We haven't done Dorothy Loudon. There well, you there go. There you go. There it is. The original replacement, Mrs. Lovett. We'll R.I.P. close out with Dorothy. R.I.P. Genius that she was. We Genius. Will, we will close out with Miss Dorothy Loudon. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Uh, and we will see you next week. This has been so much fun. Take us away, Dorothy. Bye. Bye. I'd have cracked years ago if it weren't for my sense of humor. Someday I'll step on their freckles. Some night I'll straighten their curls. Send the flood, send the flu, anything that you can do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.